know I'd go from rags to riches If you would only say you care And though my pocket may be empty I'd be a millionaire My clothes may still be torn and tattered Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 20 of the Filmotomy podcast. Uh, I am your host, Big Al Robinson, a.k.a. The Listen, and I am joined today by a good group of guys and one extraordinary female. And Thank you. You're welcome. And we are going to be talking about the great, the one, the only, Martin fucking Scorsese. Yeah, we are going to delve into uh, some of our favorite scenes, and then we're also going to be talking about, you know, just the guy and his career, and uh, just general thoughts, I think, and um, then at the end, we will answer questions that I put out to Twitter, and we got some responses back, so thank you for those, and uh, yeah, so um, I'm joined here by uh, our uh, host, Robin Wright, uh, B. Garner, you talking to me? I am talking to you. <laughs> you're this time. You're not the only one here. <laughs> Steve Swaghopper. Howdy. Rob Motto. Hi there. And of course, Matt St. Clair. Hey everyone! Happy St. Marty's Day. Yay. Happy St. Marty's Day to you too. And St. Patrick's Day. We might. We we should celebrate both, right? Yes. <laughs> of course. With you don't need the Irishman. I actually release. Oh, oh, that would have been sweet. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Actually, really anticipating that one. Before we delve into um, Scorsese for a second, I have a question. What is the perfect beer to drink on St. Patrick's Day? Guinness, obviously. Yeah. Unless you don't like Guinness, and then you know, just drink whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> or well, or Jame- Jameson. You know, some good Irish whiskey. Uh, the only no go ahead. Uh, the only sorry. Uh, the only alcohol I drink is hard cider, so I can't really say. Ah, okay. I've tried yeah, drinking that. Root beer. Ru- root beer? Yeah. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> you mean you mean if you don't want to get picked up by the cops? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, St. Paul, of course. You know, big um, Irish uh, city. Then, mm-hmm. You know what they do here is they have um, a bus service until 3 a.m. You know, that's that was funny. Uh, Ryan Johnson's uh, debut, Brick, which is one of my favorite movies, you know, the guy that directed The Last Jedi. Um, that's that's a quote in there by George, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He's like the go- talking about the Gophers, this football player at the school. It's like, hey, cold winters, but, man, they got a great uh, public transit system. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. It's like, hey, that's true. I heard it in a movie. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so Martin Scorsese, huh? I mean, that guy, he hasn't, he's never done anything in his life, right? I haven't oh even heard of him. Like, oh I had to, I had to, good. <laughs> 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 what did you find? It's got a good 
future, though, so that you know it's got a good Yes, point. yes. <laughs> but he'll yeah. never win an Oscar. No, no, <laughs> never. Never. <laughs> or a BAFTA. So, Any kind um, of recognition, really. Right. Okay, so real question. <clears throat> to start out with Scorsese, what is your first film that you remember fully seeing of his? Um, Cape Fear. Oh. <laughs> and I will tell a story about this. Okay, so I watched this film when I was 15. I'd gone on a school trip. Um, it was like my first school trip away, you know, staying in accommodation with other students. And it was this hotel that we were staying in. It was really late at night. And we all were really excited. No one wants to go to sleep because, yay, like the teachers are in their own room and we're in our, like we were in the top attic room of this hotel and um, we were messing around and we put on TV and Cape Fear was on late at night <laughs> and believe it or not like uh, I was watching it we got to that scene you know uh, where he bites off her face and it was and I was watching it and I'm like this seems really familiar like I swear I've seen this before this film and I know I haven't me a while to realize that I've seen the Simpsons episode (laughs) and I was like (laughs) and that was like one of those moments where it's like oh my gosh I'm getting all the references and I felt kind of like you know a bit uh superior to everybody else who was had fallen asleep by then but I was like transfixed watching this film to see how it finished and it was just such a nothing like I'd seen before and it's not even his greatest film but it's just one of like being alone and being um in away from my family uh being sort of scared by Robert De Niro <laughs> uh, um it was it's such a great movie because of that the atmosphere is, that scene is horrific though that's just that, that's one of the scenes i remember from that from that mm. movie when he does that and it to do it when he does that when he hunches up and tenses his body and he's like a monster and he kind yeah. of when he does that in taxi driver as well in a way when he's when he's put his hand over the flame yeah. so he's like it's, he's, a, he's a really scary man in that film it's, yeah it's when he walks into the camera you know when he's leaving the prison yeah. and it's that music and it's like oh my god he's coming towards me it's, you know uh very i i don't know it's just that that one film that's like when someone says martin scorsese it's just i just go back to that time and, and place and being terrified <laughs> I, it was the worst school trip ever <laughs> well it's interesting uh the woman in that scene iliana douglas is at the time was martin scorsese's girlfriend and she goes on to be in like goodfellow or I'm sorry, Cape Fear came after Goodfellas, but she was in that as well. Um, and I thats I spoke about mine last I said Goodfellas. You know, I saw it when I was seven. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's that opening scene where they're driving down the highway and you can just hear the body thumping. And uh, we find out later who it is and what the, what the context is. But that movie, the movie itself moves very slowly. It's very well told by Henry Hill. Uh, but, it, you know, it has these moments of like... As, as a seven-year-old, just completely grabbed me by the throat and was like, okay, this, like, these are, like, these are adults. This is an adult war. Okay, all right. You know, so uh, it just had a, an extremely impactful hold on me at a very young age. It, it just never loses its kind of its power because of that. Yeah. All right, who's next? 
I'll go next. Okay. So uh, the first uh, film of his that I remember, as a director that I remember seeing, was The Departed. And as, Hell yeah. And even if it's not my favorite Scorsese film, it was like a hint at his uh, genius that I would eventually discover. I think the first uh, film in general that he was involved in that I saw was Shark Tale. <laughs> nice. Oh yeah, I remember <laughs> with Will uh, Will Smith, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he does the voice, doesn't he? To yeah, the of the pufferfish, <laughs> <laughs> and Robert De Niro is the shark. Um, yeah. The sh- oh my god, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so go figure, right? I love that's that. awesome. I love. Oh, that's a, that's a film we should review. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, what was the first uh, Scorsese film you ever? I saw Mean Streets on its first run. Wow! Oh, man. oh, oh my god! To, lucky enough to watch his entire career unfold and watch him evolve. So mm-hmm. um, I count my blessings for that one. That is amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Robin, how about you? Yeah, I think I don't remember the first one I saw, but I was around in the sort of eighties and started to take, like, the Oscars and things like that seriously in 1990 with the, the Goodfellas, Dancers and Wolves year. Mm-hmm. But um, back then, I was a lot younger. I loved both films. So, but, but Goodfellas was... I don't know, just, it just blew me away. It was a film I watched when you watch, like, years later, a couple of years later, and you watch it again. And you feel like you've, you're watching a different version of the film. Mm-hmm. Something else, you know, mm-hmm. it, it resonates with you more. Like the Henry Hill, when he's being chased by helicopters towards the end, do you remember that? Or, you know, Billy Bats. Oh, it's just so good, and it's and it's funny as well. It, it, it really shouldn't be funny, but it, but it is. And it, funny like, how? Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> like like a clown, like I am. I mean, some of, some of the editing as well. It's it's, it's just a spot on film, really. Yeah, the, the whole spider scene. Mm. They go back to it later, and he just shoots him. Uh, it's just like what makes so much makes you jump. Yeah. When you watch it again, you're waiting for that. So he's, he's going to pull his gun out and shoot him. Yeah. yeah. So that was yeah. the one. You know. And he makes watch. a joke about like getting the coffee to go. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, and he's, yeah. <laughs> and he's taking the pot out with him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you well, know, for for me. Like okay. Okay. I think for me, probably the first Scorsese film I remember seeing was actually in the theater, and it was mm-hmm. Gangs of New York. Um, hmm. I remember getting excited about this a year before it came out. Like it, it was supposed to come out in December, 2001, but he wasn't finished with it yet. And so it got pushed back to like July 4th or something. I thought, why the hell is gangs of New York going to come out on July 4th? You know, cause I was in the, into the Oscars at that point and I was looking at release dates and I'm like, this is a stupid fucking release date for gangs of New York. <laughs> It's going to get buried. You know, they're going to forget about it. And then it got pushed back again to, like, you know, Christmas Day. And I'm like, that's right. Okay, now we're talking, you know. (laughs) And so I had to wait the whole year to see it. Finally saw it, you know. And also at that point, like, I was a huge uh, Leo fan, you know, because of Titanic. (laughs) And saw Gangs in New York. And I was just like, holy shit. Wow. You know. And, I mean, that's a two-hour, 38-minute epic or something like that. I mean, that's a true epic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to get immersed like that right away, 
you know, and that's the that's the beauty of some of those films. Like, it, depending on what you start out with him, you get a different idea of who he is. Yeah, yeah. And and, and like Gangs in New York. I mean, it, not only was it Leo, but it was Bill the Butcher. It was it was oh, it was yeah. the yeah. great Daniel Day Lewis. Even Cameron you know? Diaz. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she's actually quite good in that film. I mean, she's great as a comedy actress, but she she plays something that quite a serious role. Her accent is terrible, though. I will say, yeah, that. I, I, not yeah. Carrie an Irish accent. I'm sorry. I, Stop it. I didn't even know she was supposed to be Irish or yeah. what. It was. It's just the worst. But her regular she, speaking accent is terrible. Yeah, but she's pretty, so you know. At least she's amazing. She's yeah, me and Matt pretty. were actually talking about this. Like, Cameron Diaz is actually in some of my favorite movies, like Vanilla Sky, uh, Any Given Sunday, um, you know, and there's Gangs in New York. So, I mean, she's given good performances. It's just they're, you know, it's they, there's just something a little off, I think, a little uh, about her performance in Gangs in New York. But uh, I like her quite a bit. Yeah, she was. I always think of the mask whenever I think of her. Um, <laughs> Wait, you that, think of that before you think of, say, like something like um, there's some, um, something about Mary. There's something about Mary. <laughs> oh, well, I just love the mask. That's why, and she is amazing in it. And just and, like when she does the club scene, <clears throat> I like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> so beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> you know, okay. So I was just doing this uh, before we started the podcast. Do you guys know offhand how many of his films? Yes, I know. All except who's that knocking at my door? I haven't seen. Oh, do you know what? I was just going to ask. Has anybody seen? I, I, I think I've seen them all. Oh yeah, I've seen twenty. When I, when, I, when I was back in the sort of early nineties, when, when I was young, studying, um, me and my friend, my friend was like obsessed with Scorsese about then, like Main Street's Taxi Driver. He used to write about it. We're talking like teenagers, and I watched everything then. And who's that knocking at my door? If you watch it, has anybody else seen it? Oh wait a minute, that was his anti-war thing, wasn't it? His it Vietnam was, thing? No, no, it was a, Harvey Keitel into it. Yeah, Harvey Keitel. It, it was there, yeah. his. It, it was his official debut. Yeah, yeah. and it's and you, when you watch it, you can see. It's future films in it. It's like a blueprint for, hmm. you know, mean streets, but also good fellas. The kind of hectic, bad guys fighting, scrapping. But yeah, I think I've seen them all. I'll have to double check. Oh, I, I don't think I. I haven't seen the last Temptation of Christ. I haven't really seen hmm. much of his '80s work. Um, I've seen the '70s and the '90s, and you know, the noughties. And but uh, I don't know. I've always associated like the 80s period of cinema being trash. Uh, because so, it is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's so some good I'm, ones in there. There are. But yes, the, there are. My favorite movie of all time is in there. So I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no. My, yeah, Once Upon a Time in America was made in mm-hmm. 1984, which is right. one of these films that was completely bombed. But yeah, there are Scorsese pictures in the 80s that I do need to go back to now that... Um, I just find the 80s is just such a period where you've got Rambo and you've got, ugh, yeah. yeah, just all of those awful, that's when, so anything is, uh, I don't like that period. And also that's when they, these great directors tend to have their slumps where, you know, now the studios have come in and they're taken over and um, they don't have the freedom to 
do the films that they want to. Uh, you see, you know, a real decline. But I think Scorsese has managed to stay on top, whereas other people, such as, um, oh gosh, you know, um, other directors in that time. Like Michael of, Cimino, for instance, he like yeah, fell apart in the 80s because of exactly. Heaven's Gate, you know. Yeah, how Ashby, you know, also sort of declined during the 80s and or Bogdanovich, you know, who yeah. kind of had those great hits in the 70s and then just kind of fell off there at the 80s. Or, you know, he's still making movies and everything, but mm-hmm. yeah, he kind of... Yeah, yeah, so it's... I think many, yeah, of the, it's... many of the big names, many of the big filmmakers sort of in the 80s, and I won't say it was a decline for some, but some just came to the end of, of their best. You know, like mm-hmm. Sidney Lumet, and, you know, the 70s were so good. Um, yeah. The exception of someone like um, Milos Forman, who... Went on to make two, yeah, Amadeus, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and he made like he did okay, but he was kind of from the European thing. But even Scorsese's yeah. films are a bit; his eighties films are not as remembered as as his others, and people still associate with gangsters and and mm. all of that. And, and those films weren't really like that. There were there was, there was comedy in there. There was you know a film about pool. So I think the best thing about the 80s is that it's bookended by Raging Bull and uh, Goodfellas. Goodfellas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we don't have to worry about the rest of the teas. No. Just those two. <laughs> no, we'll pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> well, I would say so. so it's, I feel like Spielberg helped save the 80s. See, I would I, argue yeah, that he... Did, well, I was going to say, I'll probably guess what you're going to say, but I think Spielberg and Lucas helped... Um, decline the art, what the artist is and the author and, author and the director. I feel like Spielberg and Lucas did more harm than good. But, you know, that's controversial. Well, the part <laughs> of it is, the yeah, is Spielberg, I mean, he, okay, so he changed, he kind of had to change, a little, you know, coming into the 80s, you know, because he did, what do you do, Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Well, and, seven, you know, yeah. Yeah, and then he came in to do basically what, uh, you know, and he did Indiana Jones, you know, and, he, you know, so I, I look at Indiana Jones, the beginning of the end when it comes to the big blockbuster movie like that. That movie is totally fine. Standalone. It's one of my fake films from my childhood. But I definitely look at that as like the ceaseless action, you know, constantly go, you know, very, like, there's these very few stops to sort of breathe um, and just sort of like pace the movie out. Um, and I get it. I mean, Spielberg was trying to recreate the serials of his youth, and that's great. Um, but yeah, I, I I agree with you. You know, Lucas and Spielberg, um, you know, they they really do sort of uh, they spend a lot of time in that sort of big you know big movie, big kind of like idea place, which again is is wonderful to see. But um, but I I kind of prefer you know uh, I guess a little. A little and I think Scorsese does the same, where he can make a big picture, but then he can follow it up with something small, or you know, smaller scale. And and that's what he does so well is that um, his films may look grand. He could do something, you know, like uh, Taxi Driver, and then follow it up with, uh, you know, um, New York, New York, New York, New York. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's amazing that he can. Uh, take something, a, a big picture, and and then follow up with something smaller and, and maybe a bit more personal, or you know s- something that 
is centered around one character it that's what i find is almost lacking with other uh, you know directors like lucas and, and spielberg not that i you know i love spielberg i'm keen on lucas but i, I just find that the those their films have now become something that is not just they're just associated with their name you know it's a, a lack of depth to them but yeah the four major directors that came out of the 70s like spielberg lucas coppola and scorsese well coppola sort of almost killed himself on apocalypse now and sort of <laughs> way lucas yeah. is a pretty much a one-trick pony and uh spielberg went commercial but scorsese is the one who has been consistently growing yeah. Yep. He only actually sold out to make a, or attempted to make a blockbuster in New York, New York. He only did that once, and he yeah. never back that. He never went back on that ground again. <laughs> well, you know, Steve, I got to challenge you on one other director that I feel like the '70s brought into the '80s, and that was Brian De Palma. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. I think he's lesser <laughs> than those the other four, though. Mm, uh, I feel as well. Those um, De Palmas sort of fell apart really in the 90s didn't with oh, uh, yeah. bonfire of the vanities was a bonfire I cannot stand to sit through uh, Scarface oh I can't uh, either It's I love the gangster picture I love crime um, narratives I love that Brian De Palma is problematic for me I one of my yeah. favorite film critics, whatever, uh, Brady Snellis online, he talks about Brian De Palma all the time on his podcast and how he grew up in the 70s and loved watching his movies. I can't, like, Carrie is great. I think that, um, you know, but outside of that, I, I'm not really a, even like The Untouchables, like, I, I The Untouchables I is the talked Untouchables. about. Okay, I know The Untouchables is talked about as this great movie, this great crime movie, and I'm like, it's easy. It's like, oh, it's who, so ca- who cares about <laughs> Who cares the about best like, scene the Untouchables? And... The, the best scene in the Untouchables was stolen from the battleship potential. Yeah. yeah, that's the baby oh. baby carriage going down the stairs. That is so wonderful. That's just like, I but just like, love where's it. the grit? Where's oh. the like? I, just like it just felt like a good guy, bad guy, shoot 'em up movie, <laughs> like one sided. But anyway. Yeah, but it's it's still great. Yeah. <laughs> I love True. it. Okay, I love Kevin Costner, but come on, he's so wonderful enough. I I will defend that film with my dying breath, like I will also defend Hugo with oh, my dying okay. breath. Okay, yeah. to to bring it back onto Scorsese. There you go. Um, right, right. <laughs> well, now we still haven't gotten answers from uh, Matt and Rob. How many? Films? About nine. What? Nine. So it's not probably because of my. My age, because I'm only okay. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be 26 in June. Oh, you're a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I am 29, and I've seen about 20 of Martin Scorsese's. Uh, <laughs> you guys have treats. My favorite living director. He's he's by two. Uh, yeah, I think we yeah the he's one of those directors that. You, he's got such a wide variety of films that went. Um, I think it's unfair that he kind of gets associated with just the gangster films. It's not. It's not just that those films that he's done. Um, and I, I prefer his. I actually prefer um, 
pieces that aren't about gangsters. As much as I love Goodfellas and all that, you know, Casino and everything, I, I kind mm-hmm. of prefer his more, uh, I suppose, I don't want to say less mainstream movies, but I, I you know, I really like, you know, um, Age of Innocence, uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, um, Hugo. I just find those films a lot more interesting to me because, you know, it's showing a side to him, which I think anyone can do the gangster film. And they kind of feel now that, uh, you know, with I, Tonya, as we saw, that was almost like a, a basically Goodfellas on ice. And okay. those films are, are parodied so much now um, that it becomes kind of like, okay, yes, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen like another version of Taxi Driver, you know, like Nightcrawler and stuff. It's formulaic. But, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, B, it's interesting you mentioned Itania as well because. You know, Margot Robbie made her big screen, at least American debut, in a Scorsese film (laughs) with The Wolf of Wall Street. Yes, yes. Uh, What a performance, by the way. Can I just take a moment and just Margot Robbie and this, and I wrote this in the review that's coming out today, I believe, but that she, I think she upstages Leonardo DiCaprio in almost every scene, especially as they're in their marriage. I agree. I I remember... when I when I first saw when I saw The Wolf of Wall Street in theaters and I thought of her performance, I my immediate reaction was like, "Oh my God, what is she doing next?" Yeah, I find that I find Wolf of Wall Street. I don't know. When I first watched it, I didn't like it, um, simply because I I didn't like the how her character was portrayed or you know presented, um, and, and really. Because she doesn't come across quite likable or she, a bit of a gold digger. But then watching the film again, I can understand, you know, a little bit more into her character and why she is the way she is. And um, I feel like Scorsese, it'd be interesting to see, like, almost a Wolf of Wall Street version from her point of view. Uh, and I just feel like Scorsese doesn't really go into the wives as much as I would like to see. You know, these the, the women who are, um, you know, like good fellas and they're, they're trying to sort of look after the, the men and they're the real mm-hmm. voice, yeah. voices that we want to, I want him to explore. Because um, I said in my piece and Alice doesn't live here anymore, that's the only film that he's done with a female protagonist. And I feel that's a real shame because there's some really strong women in his movies, but, you know, we're not really given enough time to go, you know, spend spend with them uh, exploring their world and their journeys and their stor- side of the story. So I would love to see him do something with Margot Robbie, but have her as the main character, a really good actress. And she's perfect in his, you know, for his films. Yeah, and I think that, that a lot of that has to do with the worlds that uh, Scorsese puts his movies in and that the mm. world that he's from. I mean, he was yeah. basically an asthmatic as a child, and, you know, he went with his father to the movie, and, you know, he's from that traditional Italian 
kind of um, family, you know? And so I think a lot of the, the worlds that he puts his characters in or chooses to place his stories are in that same way. So whether, you know, organized crime, you know, where the where the wife really is in a traditional role or, um, you know, even something like Gangs of New York, where you have Cameron Diaz's character who's kind of just trying to survive on the street. You know, it, it's it's the circumstance and it's the world and it's the place that these characters live in that I think, you know, places them in more, I guess, traditional roles. And, and he likes delving delving deep into uh, situations that he's already familiar with, whether yeah. it's uh, whether it's physical or even spiritual, like his right. uh, last temptation or silence. Very true, and I think as well, it's it's sort of interesting that he gives uh, these worlds might not be familiar to a lot of his audience. Uh, I don't know very much about the mafia or you know, uh, yeah. American life and everything, but. I feel like he's he's showing us a side to something that we we've only hear about, you know, in the news or see in the movies, uh, you know, like Godfather. But it's more personal and it's showing us a bit more of what's happening behind the closed door. Uh, I find that, you know, he doesn't glam glamorize it as well. It's kind of uh, or romanticize it kind of dirty and and bloody and violent and uh, it's an interesting way to show us a side to something that becomes you know the gangster becomes this mythical um, Robin Hood character a lot of times in films and I think he makes them very real yeah I I actually I want to say that his, his technique and we see this in Goodfellas Casino The Wolf of Wall Street we see that kind of quick editing you know, scenes together almost as if like you're watching a movie trailer, you know, this, um, this sort of like, you know, quickly putting together scenes with the voiceover layered over top of it. It's almost as if, you know, he's stylistically luring us in, you know, to, to these worlds being interested. And then when we're in, when we're locked in, he kind of drops the hammer. And so mm-hmm. that's when you'll see the more violent or more disturbing aspects of it and it's like yeah this is this is part of this world too you know you can have all this fun with your friends but there's this sort of abyss kind of around and if you're not careful you can fall in or you know it's that that's constantly uh, there as well but and i don't think that's necessarily a heavy aspect to his movies but i think you can read into that i mean the departed the departed is so and so desolate <laughs> and so it's just like everybody dies and <laughs> It's kind of my, it's my, it's totally up my alley. Don't get me wrong, but um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty harrowing. I the first time I watched it, I, I mean, I was I think seventeen or eighteen, and it it shook me. I was sitting on the couch, just like, this is this is a serious movie, man. I'm I'm not sure how I feel right now. I just uh, I would say I love the end of The Departed when you see that rat run by, and you got yeah. the. Ch- that shot where you've got the rat run by on the balcony wall mm-hmm. and you've got the church in the background. It's like sums up the entire film, right. you know, it's like, oh, it's so brilliant. And I was like, oh, yeah, I see what you did there, Scorsese. I love it. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. Actually, Actually, I just... Sorry, B, if I may. Um, <clears throat> the The thing you see in the background is actually not a church. Oh, OK. It is the State House, which is the capital of... Oh, okay. 
But, right. I you will... know, it's something they they just kind of like they gloss over in the film. I, I don't even well... if you don't really know what what that building is. I still think the significance is there. Mm. Um, oh yeah, well, power. You yeah. know that's what that is. Yeah. It's power. You know. It's... Yeah, it's because it's kind of saying like religion and the mob uh, <laughs> is kind of the same. I don't know whether that's what he's trying to imply, but that's what I get from it. Uh, like any ultimate power corrupts whoever, mm-hmm. whether they they belong to a church or belong exactly. to the the mafia or belong to the the police um you know the fbi if you have too much of something you become corrupt and and that's the same we see that in sort of a message in scorsese's films that he returns to whether it in goodfellas or you know especially the wolf of wall street um too much of something you become corrupted and i uh I said before I have problems with Wolf of Wall Street. I think my main problem is the end because I don't feel like everyone's, you know, the end where he's up on the stage and he's not really, he's allowed to walk around and there's no justice there, but that's what's really happened with the actual character. So So I'm actually, yeah, I'm actually interested in, in discussing this with you guys a little bit. Um, so what did you think of the end of The Wolf of Wall Street? Because I, and I wrote about this in my piece. Um, so I feel like there are two takeaways. So the people looking back at Jordan Belfort as he's asking them to sell him this pen, are they, look, you know, are they looking at him not being impressed, you know, by seeing through it, you know, he's full of, he's basically full of shit. Like, why would we kill you? So that's one take. And then the other take, which is more my, my understanding when I watched it was, Oh my God, these people are literally looking to this guy because they want his life. Everything yes. that we've seen, everything that we, they're still looking to him for answers. And then I think about the fact that you see, there's a scene, uh, you know, where Jordan's, you know, former wife, Teresa is beating the crap out of him in front of Trump tower. And the fact that, you know, we are now have president Donald Trump. I mean, it's just, it's almost like it was a precursor to what happened in the United States. And so yeah, I, agree. I feel like it's this commentary on like, oh, my God, we, we're lost. We're going to constantly mm-hmm. be looking up to these con men for answers, yeah. a-, a la Trump. And we're we're fucked. You know, that was my kind of Daisy's trying to warn us, but we're also having a good time. What? <laughs> so. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's yeah, it's almost a critique on capitalism. Like it's empty. It's we don't need a pen, <laughs> you know. Uh, we're just being sold something that's really has doesn't have any value or, or meaning, and we're right. looking at false idols and worshiping them just for the mm-hmm. sake of it because we think that's how that's the lifestyle that we should have, you know. But money, ultimately, money corrupts all the time throughout Scorsese's movies and. Um, you know, he's very interested in, in looking at the loner and the outsider, and um, nobody seems very happy in his films. <laughs> That's something I put, but you know, they. I just think they all of his endings are very sort of downbeat, and even if they get away with it, you know that 
Jordan isn't happy, uh, he'll never be happy because he'll never have anything. You know, his fulfillment won't come from money. Um, yeah. It's very so, but that's what I love about it. It's the whole fact that it is this. Uh, the way you can interpret his films and the endings of them it's like so many different ways to do it and yeah it just annoys me that like people want that lifestyle in Wolf of Wall Street it's a horrible it's so horrible it's like not a nice thing to aspire to be well I I have okay so (laughs) bear with me as I'm going to delve somewhat deep so Rob you, you made me think about something here Mm-hmm. Uh, that I didn't think until just now. Okay, so yeah. who is our current president? And who could be a stand-in for Jordan Belfort? Patrick Bateman. <laughs> <laughs> Donald yeah, I know, Trump. American Psycho is one of my favorite novels of all time, yes. yes. Yeah. I mean, so I've thought about these issues yeah. quite a bit, yes. Like, <laughs> it's what keeps you know, awake at night. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of ironic that The Wolf of Wall Street came out in 2013 and yet only yeah. a couple years later, a guy runs for president who's from New York, wears a lot I'm of financial. suits. He's yeah. a slick con artist, you know, and, and he has a and, trophy wife. Right. And it's, yep. it's Donald fucking Trump. He might as well be Jordan fucking Belfort. And, yep. and it's an indictment. I think I think the ending of The Wolf of Wall Street is an indictment. Yeah, it's an indictment on greed. It's an indictment on um, being a con. It's an indictment on the way that the United States looks at money. It's an indictment on on the way that we think about buying and selling ourselves and what it means to, like, be rich and poor. And and if if you look at it, it's also an indictment on the fact that, like, selling things, selling illegal goods seems to be worse than, than, like, buying or stealing illegal you know because when you think of like who is jordan belfort he's more of a salesman than yeah and so it's like saying that that you know the our our um our our judicial system doesn't work it's broken (laughs) yeah right because somebody like him should be in prison for the rest of his life and yet he's out in what like four years and the film glosses over that prison you know, three that actually. Probably, it was three years. Three yeah, years. He, <laughs> he had. A, he probably had a really great time, didn't he? In prison, I, I imagine like it was probably like a rest for him. He got to chill well, out. Yeah, I mean, he's playing tennis. Well, remember what he said? It's like <laughs> I, you know, thought I was doing hard time, and then I uh, forgot. You know, doesn't matter when you're rich. Basically, it's like when you yeah. have money, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't. I mean, you can get away with it, or you can, you know, start again. <laughs> yeah, but I think that um, I think that American Psycho. Just going back real quick, uh, yeah. If, if there was a way to sum up what that book was about, because it still gets argued about to this day, it's satire, whether you know misogynist, all these things. But I really think that really it looks at um, consumerism and materialism. Not necessarily. It's not necessarily criticizing capitalism. I mean, those things thrive in capitalism. So look at that. What you w- uh, how you will. But it's about constantly buying things, thinking that that is going to, you know, basically fill a void in your life, you know, that 
and we're sold this every day on TV. You know, we're constantly advertised to uh, selling this idea of the American dream. And we all, like, we all, if we would naively go into the Wolf of Wall Street, we'd say, of course we want that life. Of course mm-hmm. you want mansions and cars and beautiful men and okay, um, or men, depending. Um, or, you know, and, and so we all want that, those ideas, things. but the reality is they, they can, like, choke, like, seriously, like, end up, uh, you know, derailing you. They can they can cause more problems than you had before when you didn't have money. So it's it's just another set of like it's another way to live, but it's not necessarily. Any- yeah, and can I just say like Matthew McCon- McConaughey's uh, small scene when they're in a restaurant? Like, <laughs> it's such a great scene. I love that, and I love how he's like talking about like. How- his like sex life and stuff and like jerking uh, off yes oh my god i wonder if people actually are like that that's because you know it's like these characters you're an american psycho b you know yeah no it's insane i don't i can't imagine a world like being in that world but like that's that's he's so great in that but yeah it's like such a small scene but whenever i just remember like that chest thing and like uh-huh. Oh, Matthew McConaughey, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's just like, wow. Uh, talk about a performance which is, like, stealing. We said about Margot Robin's, Robbie stealing, like, performances from Leo, but that's another, like, scene where, like, yeah, Leo's on. And, and one more thing, and I know this is probably going to be a little controversial, I, I actually thought you should have won Best Picture, Best Director, Best actor and best supporting actor at the Oscars. Um, uh, an I liked it that much. And Jonah Hill, I think Joe was just incredible. I mean, oh my gosh, he's just hilarious. Um, his but, teeth uh, in that film. What's up with his teeth? I, I definitely he commented on it. The phos- the white phosphorus. Uh, is it? Don't you think it's kind of cruel that Leonardo DiCaprio co-stars with the person who stole his Oscar? Matthew McConaughey, yeah, yeah. I, I think Matthew McConaughey stole his Oscar. And and funny, it's because like DiCaprio would have won for Best Picture as well because he was a producer on the on the Wolf of Wall Street. Um, mm. So I think that's kind of uh-huh. interesting too. Yeah, you know what's funny? I think of that year in the Oscars, and I think um, you know first time Oscar winners. The irony mm-hmm. is that Leonardo here's Leonardo DiCaprio. He hasn't won an Oscar yet for acting, right? He's yeah. in The Wolf of Wall Street. He gives, at the time, what's considered one of his best performances. Yeah. Who steals an Oscar out from under him? For Fucking best nothing. picture, Brad Pitt wins as a producer right. for 12 Years a Slave. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's great. You know, I just love shit like that. And um, now they're going to be in Tarantino's next movie. <laughs> on a time in Hollywood, so oh, with Margot Robbie, yeah, with Margot yeah. Robbie, yep. Well, see, it all comes boom. <laughs> so, um, you know, okay. Before we get into the main uh, event of what we're going to be discussing here, what do you guys think of the way that he uses comedy? Uh, <laughs> you know, because if you think about it, like Scorsese looks at a subject and he goes, "Hmm, uh, yeah, this is already serious enough." How can I make people right? Well, this this can. I'm guessing this is going to transition into the because uh, I've one of my three is a very funny moment. Does okay. anybody else have any um, comic choices in their selections? I'm sure you do. 
I don't, actually. No, I'm, I've tried to be a simple. <laughs> Anybody else? No, no. No comedy. Hmm. Well, you know what? I No, I do have a comedy scene. That's right, I do. Uh, but I don't want to reveal what it is. Just Okay. Um, but I think, real quick, I think that Martin Scorsese... I've heard, I've just heard in in podcast interviews with people who have worked with him that he, I mean, is cackling. He's cackling off screen at some of these, you know, at these scenes, whether it's Goodfellas and they're, you know, having dinner with his mother or, you know, it's the, the you know, uh, the funny scene by, by Joe Pesci. And I mean, there's there's a sort of like going right up to the line of this devolving into violence, but it doesn't, and, you know, and it's, it's sort of a nervous energy, I think. Mm-hmm. But um, I think you, you see that especially throughout his, his crime movies, which is so odd, you know, because it's like violence is just a, you know, a moment away, but we're, we're, la- we're laughing instead of, you know. Yeah. Cause like the uh, joke about the, who was just killed out the, the picture of the man on the boat, as he says, uh, uh, it looks like someone we know. I mean, that that that's going to land a big shit, but they're still. Got... <laughs> I think I think his use of comedy really helps to break up the scenes of violence as well uh, that we see, uh, because it kind of gives you this chance to almost catch your breath and sort of like, okay, and also then. You're you're laughing as well, and you're like, should I be laughing at this? I don't really know, but it's just so surreal and so insane and just crazy that I can't help but laugh at these scenes because they're so outlandish. And you're like, how can people be like this? And it's kind of interesting that most of his stuff seems to be like adaptations of real life events and real life stories and true accounts because then you're like oh my god people are actually like this well uh, he's from i mean he's from the, you know, those new york neighborhoods and I, so i think that plays a big part of it but i yeah i i think some of my favorite scenes from marty's work are actually do, do tr- tread between the line like comedy and and violence and I, d- I don't know what that says about me but <laughs> oh, it's like because some of it some of it evolves as well because departed's not very funny and no. taxi driver is not very funny the fact but now it's like watching the exercise and you're like oh but you, sh- you know and the bit when he sh- shoots harry Keitel is stuck on this i watched that scene the other day and i just started laughing that's not funny it's just shot someone in the belly <laughs> but but it, you know go back to your what's he say go back to your fucking child and flicks a cigarette and just suck on this and it's like you shouldn't laugh at that but it the whole thing's funny, you know. Not, yeah. I, I, you know what I mean, don't you? I'm not well, I laugh. uncomfortable funny because right. it's such a it's such a strange character. I love the fact that he takes his date to watch a porn film. Yeah. Yeah. So unaware. I so unaware that there would be anything wrong with it. It's <laughs> my favorite thing. Yeah. His, like, comedy, his comedy originates from within the characters and not necessarily the situation like it does on television. Yeah. Well, exactly. And I, I do want to, um, as much as I love Martin Scorsese and as much as I love Taxi Driver, the, the script is that it was actually written by Paul Schrader, who um, went on to went on to direct, but a lot of like uh, not as well known. Um, but I, I really like him a lot. And I, I really do want to credit him with uh, with Taxi Driver because oh, yeah. I think the screenplay is really yeah. well, key. He, 
he came he back to do. Dude. Well, he came back to do bringing bringing out the dead, um, which is like almost like Taxi Driver for the nineties and has Wait, Nicholas. So Schrader um, wrote wrote bringing out the dead. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. I know. And yeah. the Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. As, okay. I really think they should collaborate again because mm-hmm. um, it's almost like I want to see them. They did the '90s Taxi Driver. Could they do a Uber or something like <laughs> Uber driving? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I, not no, something like that. But you know, sort of revisiting almost that character again. It's, it's kind of like, um, you know, say, what would it be like now to be a Travis Bickle in, in the 21st century, in, you know, 2018? How I feel like it would be really worse for that character now in today's and, society. Mean, yeah, I the, running the for yeah, I mean, I was going to say this. Uh-huh. Is, I mean, certainly with the scolding issues that have been in, like the American press, the you know, in the last uh, month or so. Um, I mean, obviously, a new one every so often, but um, yeah, it's scary to find someone un, like disconnected and end, but who has resources to things. You know, um, what they're capable of and what what sort of like drives them and w- who they are, because that's reading about the movie, reading about. Paul, Paul Schrader talking about it he, that while he was writing, he thought it was about loneliness. But what he realizes is that it was about the pathology of loneliness, is believing that you're alone when you're not, and how dangerous that can be, and how. And it was just like, man, I am glad I had some friends growing, you know. So, but it's kind, it's just kind of this understanding of it. it's a really disturbing individual that we're spending that time with. Um, yes, and it's because he's so cut off. You know? The sad thing is that if Taxi Driver were released brand new today, it would not be nearly as shocking as it was when it was released in the 70s. Yeah. And it's, it's like we say, there's so many Travises, Travi, um, <laughs> out there now. Um, whereas back in the 70s, that was almost like unheard of. But now so there's so many more ways to be uh, alienated and never really speak to anyone thanks to the internet you know right. so um you know you don't have to it's it's crazy to think about that now uh, and that's why i'm interested to see what whether they could do collaborate together and do a film now and what how would it be as impactful as taxi driver would be because society now is so it feels like, yeah, we were saying about, like, the whole Donald Trump and Wolf of Wall Street thing, you know, being there. It, it, it's like we, films can't keep up with the reality that of the world that we're in now. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah when, when your actual reality becomes worse than the movies you're watching, then there's something wrong with society. Yeah, and I'm uh, just. I want to mention real quick uh, Bernard Herrmann's score for the for Taxi Driver. Yes, um, he you know he finished it, and then I think I think it was the day after or something, or, or very shortly after he finished it away. And yeah, he did. Like, you know, started his career. Citizen Kane and Psycho. Like it's perfect. Psycho. Yeah. That 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 droning sound as you first see the taxi cruising in slow motion on the rainy street is just you immediately get a chill. 
And also, can we say Jodie Foster is amazing in that film? But I watched Alice Doesn't Care Anymore, and she's in that as well. Yeah. And I I was like, wow. It's just like Jodie Foster (laughs) is like, what? Not in films now. And it's a real shame because she's such a great actress. Uh, But yeah, I love her in Taxi Driver, and I feel so sorry for her character because it's such an awful situation to be in, but she seems so... um, She's the opposite to Travis, like a real extrovert type of person where she's trying to make up for her the situation she is in by being this out there and sort of loud individual. And it's, it's a real shame. And um, I... I don't know, like people have said about the ending, whether she really sort of does go back to her family and I, or whether that's just in his head and he's like having some sort of dream before he passes away. And I like to think that it is a bit of a happy ending there and, and that she did go back to her family and it was a nice sort of reunion for her. But well, the, the reality would, would be like, <laughs> well, yeah, but it, it's sort of like, um, I, I know this is going to sound a little twisted, but it's almost like the ending of King of Comedy, where he did what he had to do to get it. He's, he's famous now, and Travis is also famous in a way because, he's, you know, his story got covered by the news and everybody, you know, everybody knows his exploits. And it sort of furthers the delusion. It furthers the belief that, oh, I'm. I'm a hero, you know, I saved that girl, I, you know, gross pieces of crap, and, you know, this, you know, in, interior. Um, and so I almost feel like it's, a, it's another kind of like, okay, what are we, what are we allowing, <laughs> you know, as a society? Are we sort yeah. of allowing this kind of delusional, you know, hero worship or whatever, you know? And so again, like, it, I'm, I'm realizing that played into many of his movies where, the, you know, the main character doesn't die or anything, and we're kind of left with you know, left mm. with what we've just seen, that there's this sort of lingering uneasy uneasiness. Yeah, well, well Goodfellas as well, he doesn't, he gets put into the witness protection. Right. Yeah, and, and he gets he's, to live my life like an everyday. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't yeah. get any come up really for right. it, and he doesn't, he gets the chance to be, have a new life. Mm-hmm. And you know, well, the real story is obviously, um, uh, he kind of announces that he was Henry Hill after the movie came out and then mm-hmm. kind of had to go back into witness protection and right. do it all over again. He hasn't <laughs> learned his lesson. No. Well, you know, B, um, you were talking about uh, Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver. Now, are, I know some of you guys are aware of this, um, but I'm not sure that all of you guys might be aware of this. Did you? Okay. So, you know, Jodie Foster was like, what, 12, 13 in Taxi Driver, right? And she um, unintentionally inspired John Hinckley Jr. to try and kill President Ronald Reagan because he became obsessed with her after watching that film. And in his mind, he needed to kill the president in order to get the attention of Jodie Foster. (laughs) But that oh happens all the you, time. You can't, I mean, make, uh, you can't that make that up. Is that the true? Media, the media is a, a, yeah. just a stimulant. You can't blame the media because somebody's gone off on their internal chemistry. Well, 
Oh, have you seen Network? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking, of course. But <laughs> hey, that makes it's so difficult. I mean, what's going on with these people's lives that they're not getting help and they don't have people around them to say, yeah, you're kind of watching Taxi Driver a little too much. What's going on with all these pictures of Jodie Foster? Um, yeah, or they're reading Catcher in the Rye and they decide to go out and kill somebody and so everybody blames Catcher in the Rye. It's not the perfect. Yeah, exactly. It's it's the case that we're not we're we're quick to blame something like okay, violent video games or you yeah. know, let's put those in let's ban those or let's ban video nasty or something where we're not we're not looking at these as individual cases where these are people who have been let down by the system mm-hmm. for one way or another. Uh, and it's really sad that this is the case of that we don't want to talk to people. We just want to ban things and change laws. And we need to sit down with people and be like, okay, uh, you need help. Let's treat you as an individual rather than treat everybody as a mass. And right. it's, it's really sad. But, yeah, I, I did not know that was something that happened. That is yeah. absolutely yeah. insane. And was she okay? Did he like do anything to Jodie Foster? No, she she Not was the at, president. I don't care. R- right. Well, Reagan <laughs> no, survived. Uh, he okay. almost did die that day, though. Um, he there. In fact, uh, there is a documentary about that where Reagan was shot, and um, like some guy, one of the doctors was holding his heart for like an hour or two. Oh um, my God. Yeah. But no, at the time when that happened, that was in 1981. So it was like five years later. So she was like a freshman, I think, at Yale University. Yale, yeah. And he must have slipped. Steve, did he like slip uh, a note under her her door thing? Who, Hinkley? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. I know that she she pulled away from the media quite a while after that because it, it quite upset her. Yeah. yeah. It's absolutely crazy. <laughs> yeah, apparently while she was at Yale, she had, she had security cards accompany her wherever she went. But imagine that. Like, she's obviously trying to do something with her life and, like, just go, you know, get an education, and, which is great. Uh, and then something like that. She probably wanted to keep a low profile whilst at university or college. Uh, and then something like that happens. And, you know, her time... She, will be that won't be a happy time for her like going like being at at college and at university you're supposed to look back on those days you know and reminisce about them but that's so crazy but oh my gosh no that wow they need to make a film about that um or something did you say there's a documentary yeah i thought i saw a documentary about it somewhere um you know, it, hell, it might have even have been one of those, like, History Channel or Discovery Channel, you know, something like that. Um, there's also all kinds of those kinds of stories, you know, these cable channels cover. Um, yeah, because we're all fascinated with it. That's yeah. the grim. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah I was pissed because yeah. they postponed the Oscars then. Wait, what? What? That was on, uh, that was the Oscars? It was, sir, yeah. They had to postpone the Oscars because of that. I didn't know that. Wow. Oh my god! 
So 81, right? That was 81. Yeah. So that would have been Ordinary People winning Best Picture, That's right? That's right. That's right. Wow. And hell, just to bring this full circle, the movie that should have won, that everybody thinks should have won that year, was That's Raising right. the <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's really it's really just a small when you think about it, like or how it's like the seven degrees of separation type of thing. We're all sort of connected in a way. Yeah. Well, when you have Marty running around lifting up all these rocks to expose these things, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Well, uh, should we get into uh, our favorite scenes of his? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's time. So um, how do we want to do this? Do we want to each do all three or do we want to go around until we... I didn't do any scenes. I just picked three things. Yeah, I I've picked kind of a a, a thing, a scene, and a, a, an inspiration. Oh. Um, so, well, okay, so that still doesn't quite answer the question. Do we want to go, <laughs> like, do we do we each want to do three, then two, then one? Or do we each want to do our own, like we did with a, a two episodes ago? Why don't well, we do, do each do one in case somebody has a duplicate? Yeah, okay. they'll probably they'll probably fold into each other the things. So it could, yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Well, then, um, how do we want to determine the order in which we go? Just call on somebody. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I can do that. Um, Matt, do you want to go first? Sure. <laughs> so my number my number three is from my favorite film of his and my favorite movie of all time, Goodfellas. Is that it was. Now, B, I know you've, ta- you've talked about how the uh, how Scorsese has depicts strong women in his films, even if he doesn't, even if they aren't fully developed. Uh, one, one, of, one of my favorite scenes from Goodfellas is the one where Karen, Henry's wife, pays her husband's mistress a little visit. <laughs> <laughs> and just because in that scene, without, I mean, it's a demonstration of how she's a woman who's mad as hell, yet when you look at her, but you notice this, like, cracks in her voice and her, yeah. and her eyes. You notice she's a woman that who's still desperate to hold her family together. Even, yeah. even if it's just one scene, it's a perfect demonstration. I feel like Lorraine Bronco perfectly demonstrates what her character is like. I was just going to say, the editing is terrific and not just, like, real snappy. Yeah, and I, by the way, how perfect is it that Lorraine Bronco went on to do the, the Sopranos just uh, by the end of the decade? Dr. Jennifer Melfi, yep. So fucking I, uh, I think that scene, too, is funny. Um, maybe maybe I just have a twisted sense of humor, but she's just going, like, she's just saying, hey, everybody, you have a whore living in this building. Yeah. You have a whore living in this building. It's a so whore. Like, I have nothing left. Are you kidding me? I'm going to keep my fucking family. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really good. It's, it's a, I think it's a humorous scene, but it's it's real, you know, too. So again, yeah. It, yeah. and also it's quite tragic as well, yeah. you know, um, because like you were saying, she doesn't have anything left up really apart from her family, mm-hmm. yeah, and and family is everything really in that world, isn't it? So she's doing her best to to keep them all together, and it, she's kind. Of, I like I say, I really feel like. Uh, I would want Martin Scorsese to focus on having a, a, another female protagonist-centered 
film because they're I find them the more interesting characters rather than, you know, these macho men who are going around with guns and shooting people, whipping. I like the real the real women behind it because you know they're the ones with the real control the, the situation and everything. So yeah, I, I I love that scene. You know, B, you just mentioned uh, females, and I mentioned I, I meant to mention this earlier, and I completely forgot, so I apologize. But the fact that Thelma Schoonmaker does most of his editing is just incredible. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So that was one of my points. What oh, you, you, oh, you already no, said that? Go ahead. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, let's go to that, then. Let's let's go straight to... Yeah, she's been his, his editor for 40 years. Uh, they, wow. met in, they met in Colombia. She's from Algeria. She didn't come to the States till she was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And uh, they met in Colombia, and she had... Uh, answered an ad because New York, uh, not New York necessarily, but a television network wanted, and brace yourself, Robin, wanted to be able to re-edit and adapt Godard, Fellini, and that for the American television audiences. And then class or something, and they've been together pretty much ever since. The only reason she didn't do anything um before raging bull officially is because she couldn't get herself in the union mm-hmm. but she did jump in and help because he's always notoriously late she jumped in and helped him on uh, taxi driver because he what? wasn't able to finish it in time so i just thought that was an interesting point but you know she is his tinkerbell for sure because she's been with him on every major project that he's done and the one thing you notice the first thing you notice on a scorsese film is the editing yes mm. yes yeah. And that's that. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I guess I can. Yeah. I can yeah. Go. Go, sure. So um, my my three uh, Scorsese scene is uh, in Shutter Island when Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, character Teddy is remembering, you know, I, I guess remembering his dissolving wife, and not remembering. I'm sorry, it was a dream. Mm, um, yeah. With Michelle Williams, and there's just, this music is playing in the back that is just so heartbreaking and melancholic, and you have, uh, you know, basically, what is tying this character together is his loss, is his, um, you know, what he what he has lost. The thing that he cares most about is his wife, and the fact that she's not there anymore. And of course, you know that you kind of change your feelings by the end of the movie when you realize like what has happened and what's going on, but. There is just a, I don't know, there is a, there's a deeply felt uh, scene where everything that matters to this person, you know, uh, dissolving in his hands, you know, and it's just, I, it, I guess it could be looked at as a little, or a little, but I feel like, like the intent by Scorsese is there to, to make emotionally impactful scene. I remember seeing it in the theater and every time I've watched it since is it's, it's remained very powerful for me so um yeah that that's my choice very nice by the way d you know maybe i'm the only one that has this problem but Mm -hmm. because they came out the same year and they they sort of blend together a little bit when i think mentally about shutter island and then i get they kind of meld together okay 
Shutter Island was an early yeah. release, and Inception was a summer release, and I was literally in Pennsylvania for one and in Washington State for the other, so I have this weird, like, oh, I saw these movies over and these movies. Over. <laughs> no, uh, that, that, but if you look at sort of the, um, this, the, the production design of both, mm-hmm. and some of the, um, the visual effects, you, you'd swear like Shutter Island is a scene in Inception and Inception is a scene in Shutter Island. Well, they both have that for, sort of melancholy to them of like, you know, that loss. And that's yeah. why, again, I loved Inception actually even more because of that story element. Um, you know, the son and the father. And uh, I mean, I think that Inception just as apart from its vision, extremely impactful uh, emotionally. That's, I don't know how, how m- most people feel about that, but. All right. Well, Steve, do you want to go next? Oh, <clears throat> again? Okay. All right. Um, okay. I want everybody to visualize your top 20 films that you've ever seen. Whoa. Got? Okay. <laughs> uh, just, no, just 20? Just a, quick sna- <laughs> no, just a quick snap. Top 20. The 20 most important. Okay. Now imagine 15. Uh, I think uh, what will be remembered probably more than his films will be his uh, Martin Scorsese's efforts in film preservation. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, his film foundation, his, his board of directors reads like a who's who of the best directors we've ever had since they started. Like Woody Allen, Altman, Coppola, Eastwood, Kubrick, yada, yada, yada. Um, I put together a video for my post that's coming out this week or next about his work in film preservation. And as I was putting it together... I had to winnow it down to 73 of my favorite films <laughs> that would no longer <laughs> exist if it weren't for uh, his efforts. I know. And people yeah. like I was going to say, um, he was really the one that sort of brought uh, Peeping Tom back, wasn't he? For, uh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the Lodger? Uh, no, it's Peeping Tom, okay, uh, the Michael Powell film. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. Which ruined his directing career and and basically was uh the film that psycho wanted to be but yeah. wasn't really and uh it's a really tragic to when you sort of look into it like how it ruined one of the greatest british directors career yeah. uh and the same with like vertigo as well with uh, martin scorsese brought that in back into the public eye and films like Red Shoes. Well, yeah, yeah, and his actual restoration because he noticed when he was when he was making Mean Streets because he was going back and looking at some of his other films the deterioration that had occurred had already occurred, and some of the films that he's actually had to restore were done as late as the eighties. That's one reason that he filmed uh, Raging Bull in black and white because the film stock in the late seventies was such crap it didn't last. It gets me so emotional when I I think about all the films that have been lost as a result of the lack of care. Yeah. And it kind of makes me a bit angry that we're such like a throwaway culture. Uh, and when you think of so many silent movies that have been lost at approximately... About 80% or something like that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's like history that has just been forgotten about and everything, but yeah, well, it's cool. like literature and art, you know, paintings. I mean, we don't we don't have a hundred percent of everything that was done. Yeah. It's nice to be able to preserve 
preserve our 20th, 21st century uh, means of storytelling. And I do want to um, I do want to give him credit because he is the reason that Once Upon a Time in America was restored to yes. the extend the extended director's cut uh, that was released a couple years ago. And I ha- I own it, and I every time I watch it, it is the, it's a beautiful dream. It's this incredibly it's incredibly moving saga of these boys from when they were very little to the end of their lives. I mean, it encompasses an entire life. Um, uh, and what a performance Robert De Niro in, yeah. in that film. And James Woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, just amazing. Uh, uh, and just such a great movie. And yeah. I'm, I'm glad to see that films are being taken care of by likes of Marty. And not enough people do care. That's a shame. But there are a few. And yeah, so that's a great point. Well, how about you, B? What's your... Uh third choice <laughs> actually going into we were talking about silent movies uh just a second ago my i actually got the scene from the end of hugo uh the george melee's tribute scene um and i don't i like hugo i know that people don't really see it as a scorsese film but i almost see it as scorsese's attempt to be spielberg um and mm-hmm. and take it uh, it is like most. It is. I think it's a U rating, so it's universal. Uh, it's about a child. Uh, you know, it's this magical world. It's his a film. I think he's released in three D, and uh, it's such a. It's it's like a, a love letter to cinema, and that scene at the end really gets me. Um, it's a tribute to the man that helped start cinema and who was forgotten for a long time and really beautiful. I, I love how we have the actual... I, I hope it brought more attention to silent cinema. That's what I was hoping Martin Scorsese's focus was, to bring a, a new generation to those films. And... I really find it like such a lovely, warm um, scene, especially Ben Kingsley's. It just—it's just so impactful, and I, I just really wanted to include it. I, I really like Hugo, and I know that a lot of people seem to hate it, and I can't understand why. Because, I don't hate it. Uh, oh, good! Yay! <laughs> I, really I like. like, it. I, like I really liked Ben Kingsley. I wish it was in the conversation for for Best Supporting Actor more. But it's, it's a really lovely scene, and it gets me so every time I watch it, because the real story is kind of sad, because Millet died as, you know, broken and didn't have any really recognition. Uh, so it kind of, it's a, a bit of a touching moment, and, and I love that about Scorsese, is that trying to be it's almost like his sort of kids friendly film but it's also aimed at adults as well it's kind of just a a happy happy film but it has that moment at the end where it really gets me and as someone who loves silent cinema seeing those you know films on the screen it's just a lovely tribute to the birth of cinema 
that's, yeah. I, that's why the Scorsese element comes in with what Steve was saying about his obviously clear love of cinema since he was like, um, even with The Aviator. So I'm not going to talk about it because I'm kind of writing about it. His passion for that era was there, and then the silent cinema as well. And obviously, of course, that year, up against you know, a silent film at the Oscars as well. So it's quite, mm-hmm. a, it's quite interesting. You know. Yeah. Well, how about you, Robin? Um, as always, I don't have any particular order, but um, I just wanted to talk about just briefly the we touched on like the gangster film like, and violence, and then, and then he sort of steers away and makes something else. Just quickly go back to the eighties. Just one example: The Color of Money, which was it's not people's favorite Scorsese film, but it's through and through a Scorsese film. If you watch it from the from the first scene, which is like. You see the cigarette smoke and Martin Scorsese does the voiceover to the very last scene, which is like sort of panning on um, Paul Newman right at the end as he hits the ball. Uh, and again, it's like the editing, the photography, and everything about that film is it's kind of like it's got Scorsese's name on it. There's no, there's no real violence in it. You know, it's not about wise guys. So that's just one point I wanted to make. So when, when he does come away from what we think or what the norm is, he still has his touch. I think Hugo is probably it's probably his least Scorsese the, the, the way it's edited and even the photography, the, the whole three D thing, I, I found bizarre. You know, um, I, that's probably the, one of his. You can't recognise it's probably him apart from that passion of cinema. But certainly, The Colour of Money is probably the most Scorsese film that's not about gangsters and wise guys, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Well, didn't he make Hugo for one of his grandchildren? Yes, yes, that's true. He did make it for his grand, uh, grandchildren. So, I think that, that that's lovely. Rick. Hate like it I say, now. Hate it now. <laughs> no, I will never hate Hugo. <laughs> <laughs> so, before I make my first selection, I just wanted to point out. This is just one of those fun facts that uh, in the Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, he hired a guy named Bo Deedle to play yeah. like one of the uh, lawyers attorneys. or attorneys. And yeah. Bo Deedle actually went on, and he was sort of playing himself in an Arby's commercial. Yes. <laughs> so if you haven't seen so, that, Google it, because it's pretty damn great. So I think Bo Deedle is a, he's a known like New York figure. Like he's he, he's either some, like some kind of an he is either a lawyer or like a PI, and I forget like what he's what, what he's done kind of in real life to gain notoriety, but I think he's also challenging them to be the mayor of New York too. So he's a <laughs> yeah I'm sorry former police Depart- New York City Police Department detective and a media personality known for contributing on Fox News. So there you go. He's a bit of a, like a personality who. As I guess made his way into bed. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, so my first favorite scene is from Gangs in New York, and it's the it's the opening fight scene with between like Liam Neeson and Daniel Day Lewis, where they get the two rival gangs to fight against each other in Paradise uh, Square, and of course, I mean it's just one of those like. Um, essential moments in the film where it sets up what happens for the rest of the film. It sets up the rivalry between Leo and Daniel, and it just 
it shows you sort of the way that the the neighborhood is uh, not only set up, but also the way it's divided. And I I love the editing. And I mean, again, there's Thelma Schoonmaker. And especially like when you see like these violent stabbings and all of a sudden you just get a good reaction and the music is, is swelling. And then after all that, after Liam Neeson dies and Daniel Day-Lewis declares victory for his his gang, then they, they do that pull out, you know, where they show like the, the geographical location and it the, the like the square just keeps getting smaller and smaller. And then suddenly all you can see is the island of Manhattan. It's so incredible. You know, and, and the fact that that was one of the very first scenes I'd ever seen of Martin Scorsese just showed me that this guy was a master of of not only sight, but, like, the way he makes you feel about something. And the interesting... Th- oh, sorry. No, go the ahead. Interesting yeah. thing, the interesting thing about gangs is that it should be shown in a double feature with Age of Innocence because they were concurrent in time. One one side you have the poor, and the other side you have the rich, all existing at the same time. Oh, with really? Daniel Day-Lewis in both of them. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I, I didn't know that because you know I maybe this is one of my flaws, but like I don't. Sometimes I worry about a film being stuffy. Yep. And I've been afraid to watch The Agent. <laughs> Why? It just looks like it's boring. No, 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 hey, Al, Al, Whoa. you're allergic to so, good manners, Al. That's right. <laughs> so, Al, listen, yeah. I actually yeah. you don't know which fork to use. <laughs> no, I actually agree with you, Al, and I yeah. have not watched it either. Okay, um, because it get, does it does give off that that vibe of like, oh, okay, here we go. So it's because literally the only reference I have from the Age of Innocence is a Family Guy skit in which, <laughs> yeah, Daniel Day Lewis like get a topless scene in the movie. Yeah, yeah, we could we could we can do two two. All right, we got a movie, you know, kind of joke, but um, uh-huh. yeah, I I'm think gonna, this is, I'm gonna watch it. It's definitely his most passionate film, and he doesn't—he doesn't have to go beyond the removal of a glove. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. I'll go on to my next scene if I can, because uh, it is from uh, the Age of Innocence, and it, it's a really—it's the topless scene. It's, the topless scene. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's actually the scene. It's a kissing scene, and oh my gosh, it's so. Um, passionate and erotic even though they don't have their clothes off it's exactly the most oh it just it's so beautiful there's just something about it and it's just the the subtle subtle little camera movements of uh newland uh played by daniel day lewis is on the chair with ellen uh and they're they're talking and she's divorced and he's about to marry her cousin, and they can't be together because of the the reputation and the society that they live in. Uh, it's sort of the way the camera follows his hand, and how you have the sound of the fire and the swell of the music, and it's it's something about that way that he kisses her and she like moans and everything. It's just so. <sighs> I don't know what it is. It's, it's this repressed passion that like you want to, them to just go at it. <laughs> like the, the scene in the carriage, too, be eh? yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes, with a takes off the glove. And yes. It's like so erotic <laughs> of just be, like removing a glove and just the way that he kisses her neck and it's like makes me swoon. And I know like it's we're in this world now where pornography is so accessible we can get wherever we want blah 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 and it almost the act of love making has been lost in a way uh, but those scenes from the age of innocence bring back that sort of romantic notion to courting and how slow and paced it is and uh, and everything about that that scene um, is so I don't reserved. It's so organized. It's so uh, you can see it that they want to just like go crazy and they start kissing a bit more passionately and then she cuts off and she can't do it and you're just like oh my god just go for it already like come on <laughs> and I mean um, I I'm sorry go ahead. No, it's just such. I just find that 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 scene, the whole we're saying like British people are repressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, see, okay, here's part of my problem, and I had to double check this. Um, you guys are probably gonna laugh at me, but I don't care. This is just who I am. So, I one of the shows that I uh, used to watch incessantly was Entourage. Yeah, and there's this episode in oh god probably around season three or season four where um vince is trying to do a movie and he's got a new agent right he's got um carla gugino is his new mm-hmm. and she's trying to get him into roles that he's not used to and so she she like tries to get him to do this edith wharton film and edith wharton wrote the age of innocence mm-hmm. and they totally just make fun of Edith Wharton throughout the episode, you know, where they're like, oh, God, how boring. And, you know, and like guy tries to get girl, girl won't let him fuck her because that's <laughs> the way it was. <laughs> and so I guess partly, you know, be as you're describing it, it's 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 and I, I hate to say it, but it's like it's kind of reminding me of this moment in the end entourage, you know, where like. Things are, there's too many. But that's, well, that's what, uh, uh, something that Scorsese brings back. Like, yeah, all of these worlds have rules to them. And right. these people mm-hmm. just want to break them and do their own thing and uh, live their about... life they want to. And they can't because. Oh, oh. <laughs> what? <Almost gone>. <laughs> <laughs> you all right there, Steve? <laughs> oh, that was my dog jumping off the bed and. Straight into the wall. I did. <laughs> My apologies. I'm gonna, to, I'm gonna have to leave you for a bit. He's gotta go out. Okay. No He's eighteen, so I don't argue. <laughs> <laughs> well, um I got yeah. distracted by the dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh Matt, do you wanna go next with your second pick? Yeah, sure. Uh, my my second pick is from Shutter Island. There are, there are many great scenes from that film, but I would say my favorite is... One of my favorites is the one where he's interviewing one of the patients. And because of how he's scrib- just scribbling on lines on his notebook, it's like a slight foreshadowing into 
of the big twist that lies ahead. Yeah, so it's one that I that I didn't notice until upon a, a, a second or a third viewing. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting about the glass of water. Is that the same scene where um, the woman, she asks for a glass of water and then you see her and she's looks like she's drinking a glass of water, but the glass isn't there. And it's ah. like, it's a, if you watch that scene again very carefully, you see that she... Because it's so cleverly done that you think, oh, okay, she is, the way it's edited, she is drinking a glass of water. But then you go back and you're like, God, that's not there. That's, you know, showing, like, the psychic break in Leonardo DiCaprio's character. It's like, I didn't realize it until I watched it a couple of times. And then now that it's so cleverly done that when you sort of go back and watch it, you can see it and you're like, that is so disturbing. I don't know why it's so disturbing to me. The fact that she, she we see her drink. It looks like she's drinking a glass of water. Yeah, it shows you as indication of what is. It's all just made up in his head. And spoiler, like, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's that's such a great scene. Um, yeah, I love. I I know like people moan about twists and. Even though you sort of see it coming in Shutter Island, it's still impactful because you you really get invested in that character and we follow him. And, and like Rob was saying, that moment where you see his wife dissolve in his arms, the actual ending to the film is so like bleak and just like, oh, sh- shit. <laughs> I didn't want it to happen right. like that. Well, let me ask you guys this. You know, I, I've thought about this before. The fact that Shutter Island was supposed to come out October 2009, and then got moved to February 2000, and then it got buried. Do you think that had it come out in its it would have been nominated for a few Oscars, including? Probably. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's really odd about this? Uh, I actually remember watching it in the fall of 2009. What? How? Yeah, no, I don't know, because as soon as I literally, just, when we were discussing it earlier, and it says 2010, February 19th, 2010, yeah. and so now I have to be like, um, <laughs> what? What did it Because I remember literally watching it the same time as, like, Where the Wild Things Are, I want to say, unless I'm just, <laughs> um, which is 2009, yeah, exactly, 2009, October 2009, see, I know. <laughs> see, no. he knew it! He was right all along. <laughs> no, but that's, yeah. that's my memory. Bring it incorrectly, but I went twice to see it. I went by myself, and then I took my parents because I was like, "This movie's awesome. You got to see." It. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know. Yes, yeah, Steve. That's a good question. What? Yeah, was it a preview? Yeah, I'm thinking maybe it was. Hmm. And plus the fact he's, he, like I said, he's notoriously late. That's why he keeps missing these these prime Oscar spots because they schedule him for that, and then of course he's still not done. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's why. That's why I think uh, the silence. The show just waited to have silence premiere at Cat last year's Cad Film Festival or something. Because yeah. Paramount just buried, yeah. just buried it upon release, which is a shame because it's it's quite an amazing film that I think deserved more than a consolation mm-hmm. cinematography. No. Yeah, yeah. Well, even the Wolf of Wall Street came really late. It's momentum. Yeah. If that had been, yeah. if it would have been a 
I'm 100% certain if it would have been a week later, just seven days, DiCaprio would have won that Oscar. I'm 100% certain. Well, he doesn't get any he doesn't get any traction from critics awards because he always misses those. Yeah, exactly. Because it, it was uh, I mean it got the it got best director. Everyone was in and arming about that. Got best picture. But uh, think about this, guys. This kind of slightly depresses me when I realize what could have been. So, had Shutter Island come out in its original release, it probably could have or would have pushed out the blind side and yes. then the ninth pick. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, we would have lived in a much better world. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't believe the blind matter? side. <laughs> Just such a subpar movie. It's yeah, I don't understand that movie's appeal uh, at all. People, uh, white people love films that make them feel guilty about racism. <laughs> it's, it's like, it, you can make a film about that topic and you can make it good but it's like don't just make a film for the sake of making it so you know it's going to win an oscar or get nominated for oscar do it well the real guy the real guy michael o'hare is is like an nfl player and he hates movie he like is completely (laughs) denounces it and just is like that's not my story but hey whatever you know steve what were you gonna say i don't think i was gonna say anything okay (laughs) how's your dog Oh, fine, fine. Okay, They're okay. both fine. They they just had a second uh, break. You got two. Yeah. Wow. Like what are the their hobbits. names? Tucker and Lola. Lola's a Great Dane, and Tucker is a German short hair. He's the old guy. <laughs> so, Robin, what do you think? Do you think had Shutter Island come out in two thousand nine, it would have knocked out uh, the Blind Side? Oh God, you'd like to think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, I think I think it had a chance. Um, on the back of The Departed, obviously, and started to like Scorsese. Um, it's difficult to say because it's still quite, it's kind of a like underground type film. It still could have maybe got some text. I'm not sure. It's, it's really hard to say. Yeah, I, I, I li- I'd like to think so myself. But, you know, but it doesn't really matter, Al, does it? Well, I mean, no, film, no, I it mean, doesn't. But that, look at that. <laughs> When you think back on that period, and you know which is the better film, it doesn't really matter what Oscar thought. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, plus, here's the beautiful thing that I, I feel like I need to point out, is that Scorsese might have been standing in the way of what ultimately happened, which is that Catherine Bigelow became the first woman to ever win Best Picture and Best Director. Yeah, but come on. Who enjoys the Heart Locker? Who thinks, like, oh, I'm going to put the Hurt Locker in to watch. Yeah, really. Like, it's not that great of a film. I love it. Whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> Whoa. Glorious Bastards is way better. I know, Bianca, you don't really like Glorious oh. Bastards, but... I... Well, yeah, I would uh, I find I, Hurt Locker think, very boring. I think an education should have won. But, okay, yeah. it was good. I like Carrie Mulligan a lot. It's not like I'm glad that Catherine Bigelow won an Oscar, but there have been, she's a good uh, director, but there have been a female directors who have come before her with some really great movies who have been ignored. Yeah, uh, okay. It, it annoys me that she's the one that won the first. You, you Why did it take so that. long? Yeah, it's, a, it's great. No, well, It's a good film. Here's the I just don't find it. Guys, I'm going to have to leave you pretty Sorry. 
Um, okay. Well, Steve, do you want to get... Okay. Um, hmm. Yeah, Steve, what's your... What's your yeah, yeah. Go too. So I guess the only other thing I wanted to mention was, and I don't know if anybody's even uh, aware of it. Possibly, um, the way the way Scorsese scores his films is just remarkable. But I think the best the best score that he ever came up with was for uh, the Last Temptation. Mm. Uh, he turned it over to Peter Gabriel, who went out and scoured uh, Turkey, Pakistan, Morocco, Egypt for musicians. To, uh, to help him do the score. And it's a total, total departure from the usual biblical epic, you know, the Max Steiner boom crash, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it, um, at the time, the, even the album became a huge hit. It won a Grammy for Best New, I don't know, New Age. I could, they couldn't figure out where else to put it, I guess. <laughs> and it, it put, uh, put international musician, musicians like... Uh, Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan and Yusuf Ndor, they made them uh, far more far more public than they ever would have been, and brought world music onto the onto the scene at the end of the end of the eighties. Uh, I will have. I'm interested. Just to, the name of the album is uh, Passion, Peter Gabriel, and it's. I mean, everybody in the eighties knew Peter Gabriel from his his videos and stuff, and nobody expected this from him. And yeah. it's quite. It's a it's a major musical achievement. Well, hell, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of Say Anything, but Peter Gabriel will sadly always be remembered as that song from the boom. In your eyes. Well, you got to expand your Peter Gabriel in. <laughs> yeah, no, Peter Gabriel was way better than that damn thing. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember, hey, Al, do you watch South Park? I don't. Um, uh. Well, I, I probably should, because, <laughs> I mean... I know it's funny, but I don't know. Sometimes that kind of humor just gets me. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah. But uh, what about it? Because uh, there was a uh, there was a no, no, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> oh <laughs> come on! <laughs> oh. Come on! You can't do this to us. I was a bit of book that way. What about it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was like, oh, fuck you then. <laughs> no, no, it's not like that. Just South Park has had some of the seasons, though, I will say that. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I guess what I want to say is, like, I wish I liked South Park. Yeah. But for some reason, I just don't. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, Fair and, enough. <laughs> and, and, and like, for instance, I hear, you know, I listen to a lot of, like, the 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 water cooler podcast uh, from Award and mm-hmm. um, Clarence especially brings up South Park a lot and okay. every time I'm listening to those guys I'm thinking why don't I watch this show fair enough yeah guys I'm gonna have to take my leave okay well thanks That's for nice joining us enjoy the rest yeah All you right. too have a good weekend Bye. you too you bye 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 okay. B, can I get back to to uh, what I here's what I was oh, gonna no. say about Here no, we no, go. no, it's, oh okay I, oh, I'm I, sorry <laughs> look yes Catherine Big Bigelow's amazing no no that's actually not what I was gonna say I believe believe it or not I was gonna say that the, if the Hurt Locker hadn't won Best Pick we wouldn't be where we are with with uh, female directors I think we would have got well, yes I, don't I think agree would have. I don't think it was the Hurt Locker that brought 
Well, yeah, but I, I guess I, what I mean is in terms of, like, uh, well, you know, like, in terms of Oscars and in terms of big budget films. Well, I don't I think, think, yeah, I don't think that the Academy, like, that that's that's for them. You know what I'm saying? Like, the Academy Awards is, is a, a prominent enough organization, or, you know what I'm saying, the, the Academy is prominent enough organization to make that statement. But I also feel like that's them patting themselves on the back when they haven't really, you know, showcased female directors before. Not that mm. not that it's been as common as it is now. But um, I think it's a good thing ultimately. But I don't I think that we would have this moment regardless. But that's just my take. So although no, I, feel, I feel the same. Well, we've had so many amazing female film directors that have gone by and mm-hmm. we are just ignored them and it's although yes the problem is with Hurt Locker is even though it has a female director it doesn't have any real positive female characters in it it's a well, very it's a male movie I mean I hate to say that it's a movie but it's a it's a war movie you know about a guy that's disabling bombs and that's what annoys me is the lack of female characters in that. And there have been other great film, female film directors told female stories who have been completely ignored by the Academy. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, okay, so we're awarding a female director for making a man's movie that we can connect with. Mm-hmm. And that seems well, you, see, much hypocritical to me. That's yeah. where I was going to make the point that Okay, so um, the idea that if she hadn't won for the her, mm. maybe, maybe, and I'd be okay with this revisionist hit. Mm-hmm. Had she fucking won for Zero Dark Thirty, which in yes, my opinion yeah. is a better film, anyway. What with all that mud, all that mud being slow. Well, I, I um, yeah, yeah but so see, I well, don't. No, go ahead. I was just going to say just one thing. I, I, I didn't like Zero Dark Thirty just because there was a lot of sort of there behind the scenes or whatever. The CIA basically said, hey, if you want our help with this, you know, showing, you know, uh, you know, guns and planes and, and getting sort of the background information do and what an operation like to be, um, you know, we have to basically approve the script. You know, mm. and that kind of stuff creeps me out personally. I, I mean, maybe that's a political thing more than anything, but I get. I'm, I'm remembering where we were in the '70s, right? Where it was a known fact that the CIA was this sort of diabolical organization that would do would stop at nothing to, you know, com- complete its goals. And so now it's like, oh, we're just to that. So it's sort of this reversal of like the '70s pessimism of like, yeah, let's just trust the powers that be. To and again, that's different from what the movie is technically. But I just I get hung up on stuff like that and like. Meh. I, I never saw the Hurt Locker, but I do think that Zero Dark Thirty should have won Best Picture. And, and Rob, I know this is going to be a controversial video for you, but I think Jessica Chastain deserves Best Actress. Um, I don't, but hey, I I respect all of it. I think she's good, but I wish that she. I kind of don't like the fact that she's very uh, in everything at the moment. Do you know what I mean? Okay. She's a bit bit like Jennifer Lawrence. Like, come on, guys. We have other actresses that we can use. I know. Give Meryl Streep a chance. Uh, I know. <laughs> and Judy Dench. Yes. Judy Dench. 
Yeah. <laughs> I've not. I don't know this Meryl Streep when you speak. Yeah, of. but can I? Can okay, B, can I? Can I just make one counter argument with that? Is that okay? She is a victim of her own success. Who, Meryl Streep? No, 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 no. Judy Dench. <laughs> Catherine Bigelow. Catherine Bigelow. Helen Mirren. Oh well, no. What? <laughs> What near dark and um, and Point Break? <laughs> right, right, right. No, Jessica Chastain. Oh, Jessica. Chastain. Jessica Chastain is a is, she's a victim of her own. But it's it's the case of like, sure, it's great that she's getting roles and everything, but what about other actresses who have been un, you know, who are underused and underappreciated? Um, that's true and it just feels like it's either starring Jessica Chastain or it's starring Jennifer Lawrence what about other actresses I don't want they do great work but you know I'd say there's really there's a big five if you think about it well no Mm. big six I'm sorry there's a big six because there's Amy Adams there's Brie Larson Saoirse Ronan yes who is also becoming Every, in everything nowadays and Margo, overused. I think and Mar- Margot Robbie and Kristen but, Stewart. So technically seven. Yeah. I think but, Kristen uh, Stewart's really good. Yeah. There's like seven actresses that are in every film. Mm. Kind of like the way that <laughs> Dom Hall Gleason and um, the guy from Get Out, uh, he's got... Daddy Old Daddy Marshall Green? No, 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 no. The guy, oh God, he, was, he got beat up in three buildings. Caleb Landry Jones. Caleb Landry Jones. Caleb Landry Jones, yeah. Those two are in every movie. It's like there are so many other actresses that have been underused. And <laughs> I'm ta- I'm talking about actresses who have had long careers and I want to see them back in roles and given more attention. And they've almost been forgotten about because they've got a bit older, you know? Well, Nicole Kidman did amazing. I mean, I don't want to say it was a comeback this year, but she did Big Little Lies, an HBO series that was really good. She did, um, oh god, I can't think of the Sofia Coppola movie right now. Um, uh, Beguiled. Beguiled. Yeah. Thank you. And Anchor Deer, and I mean, she just she had an incredible year last year, and I'm surprised she didn't really uh, walk away with any hardware. But uh, I want to see more Laura Dern. I want to see Jodie Foster come back. More, more Natalie Portman, uh, Sally Hawkins for sure, um, and I want to see older car- uh, people that you know, Emily Blunt. More of her. Can we have more of her, please? Yes. Um, Harry Mulligan. Michelle yes. Yeah. Elizabeth Olsen. Yeah. Uh, is it Carrie Mulligan? I'm sorry. Michelle Williams. Can Harry we have Mulligan? more? Mi- Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> yeah. Can we have, like, just a bit more, like, definitely... Yes. I love her. She's amazing. Diago. Um, see, there's so many... Yeah, ex- she's... Um, yeah, but we just seem to be the same ones being kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, all right, we'll have... It's like, oh, come on. Or just new talent, you know? Yeah. I, I just find it like kind of frustrating that we've got the same actresses, be, the same big seven being used over and yeah. over again. It's like, ugh. Well, like, the studio system all over again. You know, it's you yeah. stars 
you know, yeah. attracting that talent to the, you know, so people want to go see them. Yeah, it's not the fault of the actresses who keep taking no. the work. No, no. It's great that they they're getting the work and the roles that they get are wonderful. There's like strong, empowering women, but I do feel like you know we're not getting the range of acting there that we what, should have. I'll tell you, what we have forgotten about Martin Scorsese. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was going to try and bring us back. Uh, yeah, he needs, you, more, so he needs to get more uh, female character roles. <laughs> yes, most definitely he needs. Yeah. So uh, where were we exactly? Um, okay, so Steve. Okay, uh, for the okay. <laughs> Steve gave us all three. Matt, mm-hmm. you've given us two. Mm-hmm. B, I believe you gave us two, right? Two. Yes. And then. Um, I think it's Rob. You're up next, right? Yeah. Uh, so my second choice, my second scene is in Casino, where uh, the marriage of Ace Rothstein and Ginger is falling apart, and you know they're riding. I think you know just across town, and I think it's a town car, or might be a limo. Even the score from that that Godard used in Contempt for Camille, mm-hmm. uh, it play, and it plays at this moment as well as the very end of the movie, and it just it's. I believe it's just like a singular violin playing, but it is so unbelievably moving and heartbreaking and just it, it, it informs the scene. And it's just um, and it and it I swear it I was so obsessed by it that I literally was like, OK, what is this music? And I went to look it up and then, you know, I just I was like casino score on YouTube, like, you know, trying to find <laughs> the song. And I finally did find it, and it was referenced like, oh, it's it, it was originally used in Contempt, 1963, and so I had to go watch that movie. And so it, it was this almost like he used something from a very well-known, you know, cinematic history and used it for his own, you know, his own purposes, his own benefit. Um, yeah. So I, I, I definitely wanted to, to single that out because it's, it's kind of an odd thing to, to, to say or to reference, but... Um, it, it ha- definitely has a lot of uh, meaning and impact for me. And we, we were just talking about actresses who aren't used anymore. What happened mm. to Sharon Stone? She was everywhere. She's, she's going to uh, be in something this year. I forget. Heck, she's got a movie coming out like next. Oh, yeah, really? I'm trying to remember what it is even. I'm lost right now. Thinking about uh, it. Looking it up right now. Let's see. Okay. She was in The Disaster Artist. Um, was, she? was she? Wait, yeah, what? She was? She was? Yeah, she was the, the agent. Oh, takes, his age, agent? That takes him on straight away, yeah. Oh, my God. Wow. I don't... Was she wearing makeup? I don't, I don't remember. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it's probably... It has been, like, 20-odd years since, you know. Wow. So, she wasn't you know, CGI, this is crazy, but women do age. I know, like, we no. like to think that they don't age in Hollywood, <laughs> but they do. Yeah, she's 60. She just had her birthday. Well, happy birthday to Sharon Stone, <laughs> if she's listening. <laughs> oh, this, okay, I found it. Her next film is called All I Wish, which comes out March 30, and it's directed by uh, Susan Walker. Oh, there we go. Mm. We'll have to check that one out. Yeah, in fact, she has the top billing. Yeah. Cool. Good, good for her. And she's in it with Ellen Burstyn, of all people. Yeah. So she was in that. She was in that film with um, oh, Chris Christopherson, directed by um, Martin Scorsese. But Alice doesn't 
Yeah, I'm just trying to get back. I'm just trying to get back to the Scorsese. Right, so who's next? Actually, good Robin is next. Good luck editing this, Al. Yeah, right. I'm going to have a hell of a time. <laughs> okay. Um, so I don't know if any of you know, uh, I, I write screenplays, and I've like t- taken about two years off to focus on the website. But I want to I wanna go back and do it. But you, when you, I don't know if any of you have written fiction before, screenwriting or anything, but yeah. you're, you always get inspired by films. Some... Mm-hmm. Some you're aware of, like I, I very much like Goddard uh, and that sort of thing. And Billy Wilder, I try and be funny, but I'm not. <laughs> um, and some just happens. Uh, so there's two films I've, I've, I wrote. One's called Love Bell, which is about um, set in America, and it's about uh, like a Texan family. The young girl's got like mental disabilities, so she's got like, she's like more like a child, and at the end she runs off because her family's like not discerned but betrayed in a kind of neglecting way. And she goes to New Mexico and becomes a waitress. Her brother goes after her and comes in and, like, gives her a speech. And she's got, like, the tray in her hand. And I didn't realise until I finished that I've just completely ripped off. Um, Alice doesn't live here anymore, the final scene of that. Um, obviously different because they were lovers and not. So that was, like, how Scorsese somehow has inspired me to write a really good scene. Uh, and then the other one quickly was about a young swimmer whose mother has a really, like, interesting relationship with um, her work colleague. And they're quite different, but they've got this rapport. Again, that's taken straight from Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. <laughs> with the waitresses, there's some really great scenes with them too. Oh, yeah. Um, as Beacon can justify that. But, uh, so that's just something I, thought I wanted to think of that was not obvious, like about a gangster film, because, but something that inspired me and I almost didn't realise what it was from. Until I'd finished these two films, I was like, "Oh, I won't." You know, it's Alice doesn't live here anymore. So, sort of abstract instinct from Scorsese there. I think it's interesting because it's not about her relationship with men in that film; it's her relationship with women in Alice doesn't live here anymore. Um, because she, and it's also about her finding herself. Like it's, a, it's such a great film, and um, I love that the scene with her and is it Flo when they're in the bathroom and she's oh my gosh I just really something about that that's like when I think of America I don't know America but I always think like do you have those diners you know like (laughs) do you have diners like that can someone tell me for sure yes Yes, we do okay because I thought it was like something that Hollywood makes up because I always want to go to a diner and like have the coffee and have the waitress who comes over and she's like, "Oh hi, doll," <laughs> you know. <laughs> I just that's just how I picture. It. Well, Instead of you having restaurants, you go have go to diners. <laughs> B, do you ever watch? Did you ever watch Glee? No. Okay, there's no, this. Doesn't. You'd be glad. <laughs> oh come on! It's not. It's that Ryan bad. Murphy. Yeah, you should be watching American Crime Story. <laughs> yeah, I love American Crime Story and American Horror Story. <laughs> there you go. Glee well, is okay. not my thing. Okay, well, okay. Uh, Matt, do you like uh, Glee? I never watched it. No, no, nobody likes it, Al. Sorry. Oh, man, I'm an island here. <laughs> well, okay, so there's this... Have you seen South Park? <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, The Simpsons. Have you seen The Simpsons? I've seen that a couple times, yeah. I might There's a lot a of Marcy Scorsese uh, references in some. Oh, God, yeah. yes. You should have said something. <laughs> I should. <laughs> well, anyway, so, all right. I'll say this quickly. So in Glee, there's a later season episode where they're in a diner and they're doing one of their routines, like the the lead, Leah Michelle, Rachel. She mm-hmm. she ends up working at a diner and she's like a singing singing waitress. And so it just made me think of that. Although when you were talking about waitress, I for some reason I thought of Dolly Parton. Oh yeah. Yeah. Is it nine nine to five? Um well, that's one of her films, but I'm not sure. I did. She's done more than one. <laughs> that's the Hall House in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ask Robin. <laughs> well, anyway, so my second um, is from The Departed, and it's 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 a later scene, and I'm not really sure where it fully, but it's where we have the death of. Leonardo DiCaprio and Anthony Anderson. In the elevator, yeah. In the elevator. Because Leo um, figures out that the people that he's working um, are, well, he already knew, but basically he's trying to get them. So Mm -hmm. they they go up to this building, they go up to the room, and he's going to make an arrest, and he picks up uh, Matt Damon, right? So Leo is finally revealing that he is a cop. And Matt Damon, of course, is a bad guy. And so he pulls him into the elevator and he's like, you're under arrest. I'm making it. And Matt Damon's like shrugging him off like, yeah, fucking right. You're not going to fucking. Well, sure enough, Matt Damon is right because the elevator opens and bang. Matt, uh, Leo gets shot in the head and it's Anthony Anderson. And then like. I swear to God, like, something happens. I, I forget what happens exactly, but then, like, three seconds later, Anthony Anderson gets shot in the head. <laughs> yeah, he comes down the <laughs> stairs because they were in the elevator. And then, yeah. Boom. It's just like, holy shit, they just killed Leo, and they killed the one black guy in the movie. And then fucking Damon. <laughs> Matt fucking, Damon killed, yeah, yeah killed this guy. Whoa. Calculating while cleaning the gun or tying his shoe or whatever, and then he fucking, it's just like, yep, this is the world we're in. Yeah. And then Matt Wahlberg at the end with his with his plastic shoes. Right, shoes. right. Yeah, the booties. Uh, what an ending. Uh, I was just like, holy shit, did they just mm-hmm. do that? Whoa. You know, because, like, Leo is one of these guys that, yes, he dies in movies, but you don't think he's going to die in the de- in the Departed? Oh, well, it's called the the Departed. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's why I say that movie is almost like a it's a neo noir because it's very. It, I feel like it's almost influenced by you know the, those movies of the you know forties, fifties, and sixties where you have these extremely desolate endings. You know, almost like a Chinatown ending uh-huh. where it's just like you are absolutely left with um, almost gutted. You know. Yeah, and 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 the fact. If you think about it, the fact that, like, they foreshadow that with the fact that, like, when Leo is in the cop training or whatever they call that, and, like, he's yeah. he's running with Anthony Anderson, he's like, let's face it, you're a black guy in Boston. You're already fucked. 
Right. You don't need any more help from me to be already fucked. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's just like Speaking about shit. the racism that Boston is known now. Right. Exactly. And also Jack Nicholson in that film. Like, oh, man. Oh my, I miss Jack Nicholson so much. I know he's <laughs> retired and I think it's because of health reasons. Um, yeah. that he was struggling to remember lines and probably has sort of a out, Alzheimer's or... Well, I, I hope you're not entirely right because he's... Yeah. It's just it's sad because, like, you know, so many great actors from the 70s or, you know, kind of, I miss them and I I know they're that old. I just want them to keep going. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Jack Nicholson in The Departed, oh my god. Wow. Yeah. Just like crazy. <laughs> oh, I think I think it's so weird how the film has so many great actors, yet Mark Wahlberg is the representation of them all. <laughs> Was he the one nominated actor? Yeah. yeah. The best supporting actor. It was good though, but he had like I think he had the best lines, didn't he? Uh, yeah, and he's from I mean, he Boston, was, and he played that role really well. I mean, he was, he was, to me, he was just playing douchey Mark Wahlberg, but... He was just playing he was, himself. Yeah, he was, he was great was at it. Mark, Marky Mark. I mean, let's face it, there's no way that he should have been nominated over, like, Alec Baldwin, or uh, even Martin Sheen. I'm sorry, I actually disagree. I think that Mark, literally, Mark Wahlberg, I mean, yeah, I, I actually him very much as an actor, but I feel like that performance, he, he absolutely hit it out of the park. Now, yeah, well, I it, think it's because he, he didn't know those have people. to do actors. Like, ex- exactly. Exa- yeah, it, plays, it plays it to his limited rage. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, you're oh, absolutely well, yeah. fit, but it, in comparing that performance to, like, Martin Sheen, I, I liked Alec Baldwin in this very much, especially, like, that scene when they're in the warehouse before the raid, and he's like, you one of these fitness freaks? You don't smoke, huh? <laughs> it's just, you know, just, like, banter <laughs> is great, but... Yeah, I like him I, on the uh, the golf, the, um, what do they call that? The the driving range? The like, driving like, range. He's like, I have a... Being married. Yeah, he's yeah. like, I have a perfect... Um, Track record or track or, record, yeah. He's like, you know, I just love. Most that. people don't trust the guy with the perfect track record. I or immaculate record. I have a, right. an immaculate record. <laughs> the the bullshit in that movie is where, where the comedy comes from. I feel like you know, just the just the deflection, the tough guy personas. The you know, it's total. It's a total like man's world, <laughs> you know. But um, but yeah, I. I I find a lot of comedy in, in Wahlberg's like delivery and his in his lines because he is playing like a kind of no nonsense asshole. <laughs> but well, you can maybe understand. I was just too entertained by it. You can understand why that character's come about and how he's come about to sort of like the world that they live in. Mm-hmm. You know, they they have to be assholes to get results. You know, yeah. they have to be like demanding and they have to assert their authority and be the alpha male in order to to get what to survive really it's uh but yeah he's actually quite good in that film oh you know i can't really say that about anything else no i yeah well b what's your top uh um we've already sort of discussed it but alice doesn't live here anymore um, I've gone for her audition scene um, simply because it's such a 
it's such a great film and i really want you guys if you haven't seen it already to go and actually watch it um because it's so moving and i just love how real it seems like the dialogue we were just talking about dialogue from um the departed a lot of the dialogue in alice doesn't live here anymore is improvised and some of the best line in the film it's not in this scene but the best line from this film is when uh she's going to alice loses her husband and decides to move back to go to her hometown where she was brought up from and she's looking for a job on the way there with her she's got an 11 year old son who is super irritating but it's wonderful (laughs) in this film um and she's looking for a work as a singer that's all she wants to be in her life is to be a singer and she's going around these bars trying to look for work this one line where she gives where the guy's like turn around and she's like i don't sing out my ass and i love that line um but the scene in (laughs) the scene is a her audition scene to to play in one of these bars and um, sat at this electric, you know, uh, keyboard playing this song, and the way the camera moves, swirling around her, and it sort of picks up pace as the, the, her music builds. Uh, it's just wonderful, and the lovely sort of the way that we have the sound of traffic up in the, and then the moment that she starts playing, all other sound is drowned out, and it's just her, and she really becomes the song and you know that this is her way it's liberating for her she's had to be this sort of housewife for 11 years or so and and be a mother and the only way that she can truly express herself is through singing and music and i just love it's simply the camera the way that that camera moves around the bar and the close-ups on her and you can really see the passion and energy in her performance. It's, it's really amazing. And it's, there's some really good scenes in, in that film, lots of them. But I found that for, the, for me, te- it's showing Scorsese's appreciation for, for the camera as a character as well. Uh, and there's a lot of great camera work throughout his work you know from goodfellas to wolf of wall street to, you know whatever but i found that this was a really great example in his early work of even when he was first starting out he still appreciated the art of filmmaking and the the camera as a character so it's, it's just a great scene it's really it's quite a tame film as well isn't it? if you think what's coming next is mm, taxi yeah. driver it's quite amazing so you know Al, you've got to see it, but also you've got to watch The Age of Innocence, just simply because it's Scorsese. It doesn't matter what genre it is, who's in it, what it's about. You know, I watched it with Scorsese when I was, like, I watched like, Age of Innocence, and I just thought, oh, shit, you can do that as well. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. You can do a kid's film with Hugo, you can yeah. do the period drama, and he can do the sort of woman's mellow pick with... Yeah, so, yeah. The range is there, so... Absolutely. No, I mean, yeah. I, 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 like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm definitely planning on filling in all the... 
Um, I watched the I watched the eighties stuff. The if yeah. you watch a- Age of Innocence, I'll go back and watch all the eighties films. If you want to stream them, all the streams are available <laughs> on the website. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Here's the thing. Um, I don't think New York, New York is even available right now. No, I can find it. It it was on Google Play, but it's been removed. But I added the link because it might come back. But I don't I don't know why it's vanished. But yeah. it's it's probably the one. If you're not going to watch the Scorsese, that might be the one you don't watch. I actually was was watching it last night, and I won't. I will be writing about it. But oh, oh my god, what a weird film! Yeah, <laughs> like the big psychodrama. Like, Jesus Christ, it's supposed to be romantic and Robert De Niro, like, you, yeah, like, oh my God, his character, what the hell, like. Well, how are you it, watching it, though? Uh, I have, I bought it on DVD. Oh, okay. Uh, but I've she had it a while. She dedicated yeah, this one. Thank you. I'm, I have a lot of films that I buy on DVD and never get around to watching them. So I've always thought, like, Oh, okay, New York, New York. I've heard a lot about it. And I'm not a huge musical fan, so I've kind of kept it to one side. And I thought, well, this is a perfect opportunity to watch it. And, like, I don't know what I feel about it because I love, like, when it's doing the music and it's got the musical numbers, it's great. But when it's doing the human side of things, like the romance, it's like, this is not romantic. This is borderline stalker. Mm. Well, this is actually stalking. It's <laughs> it's like warped. And I think it's like if it had been Robert Redford or anyone aside from Robert De Niro, it could be quite romantic. But it's Robert De Niro and he's crazy. <laughs> he's just <laughs> like, I just think of him like, I'm expecting him to take Liza Minnelli to a porn film on a date or something. <laughs> and, then, and then punch her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. And bite her cheek or something. Yeah. Uh, what else has he done? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Matt. My last pick is the scene in the Defari where Leo gets shot. Uh, <laughs> Hell, fucking yeah! yeah. Woo! Oh. So, so, I mean... They, they, I mean, they killed off their biggest movie star like, like that. <laughs> it's so good. It was shocking, wasn't it? It really was. Yeah. And also, when you get quite the, the good character, like he's the good guy in that film. Yeah, and you follow him all the way. Yeah, and you're yeah. like, oh my god, he's going to actually bring it down, bring down like everything, all the corruption, and bam. He gets shot. But it makes his, I feel like it makes his character that much more, like, I don't want to say relatable, because, like, I don't think that's the word I want to use here, but more like, it's like we, we care more about his journey. We care more about what he's gone through. It's like, he could check out at any time. Yeah. You know, he could, I mean, granted, you know, they'll, they'll know or whatever. He could be looking over his shoulder the rest of his life or something, but he sees it through to the end. He knows what he has to do. He's terrified. Like, he's absolutely... The vulnerability that DiCaprio shows is, to me, incredible. And I, I wish I wish he would have actually gotten noticed for that performance, except that he did Blood Diamond the same year, and he got nominated um, for Best Actor for that. So, I mean, 
And oh who, my god, I, really? Who the yeah, hell so remembers I, that? I was that, looking at the Oscars as like, oh, okay. Oh my he got nominated that, for Blood his Diamond. His accent in that in Blood Diamond is so appalling. It's like, <laughs> is what it, is see, that? I was completely okay. Uh, full disclosure: met- I saw Blood Diamond many years after it came out. <laughs> I have no ear for this. Is is it South African? <laughs> yeah, that is not <laughs> South African. No, it's so, like what is it, Nigerian? Because then not... I saw um and was like, oh, that that okay, so that's kind of what a, a someone from South Africa sounds yeah, like. Yeah, I know. Um, I know people from South Africa. And... Now I have to rewatch Blood Diamond, but when I watched it, it was so moving, and I was like, cr- like crying. <laughs> just like, I just I, re- I don't know I really why he. It. What, why they couldn't have had him just play American? Like, why I, I did he know. have to be South African? And I or will if... say something. Sorry, I will say um, oh. Mark Wahlberg and Matt Damon's Boston accents are a little bit better than Leo's. Like, Leo does a, re- like a really good job for not being from there, but it, I feel like there are parts where his accents may, might suffer a little bit. Yeah, he's not good with accents. <laughs> <laughs> Gangs of New York was a bit of, a, of an issue for him as well, but he was fine. I, I looked it up. Um, yeah, okay. Um, Blood Diamond took place in Sierra Leone. Okay. Which is actually, well, it's it's thousands, it's almost like a thousand miles from South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, I, I, I just have to remember that, like, Africa generally is one of those continents that gets mis- mm-hmm. and it's it's perfectly fine i i just love geography a lot yeah so i i i pay attention now if you guys are wondering where the hell sierra leone actually is mm-hmm. okay so you know where the if, if it's on the northern hemisphere right oh makes so sense. you know do you know where like the ivory coast is yes yes yeah. Yeah. it's over by the ivory coast okay yeah, I, but I think, yeah, but his character is supposed to be a South African. Yeah, that's why it's stuck in my mind, because I don't remember where it took place, but yeah, for some I reason I have it in my that mind accent. that he was... Yeah. <laughs> it's when, like, my, it's when he's, it's like, it's a big diamond. It's really, really bad. It's like, that's not South African. That's, yeah, like, yeah. really sort of quite, I don't want to say, like, insensitive. I don't know. It's just like you just thought, well, I'll just go with any old African accent. They're all the same. Well, you know, it's probably one of the reasons why Edward Zwick is has not become like a I mean, if you think about it, like Edward Zwick, he he became famous because of and then like okay. he did he did I mean, he did films, but he I don't think he was recognized again until The Last Samurai. Hmm. And that's like a 14-year yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Jonathan Demi. Jonathan Demi had player issues after Silence of the Lamb. He did Philadelphia, but then after that, he kind of just fell off the map, and unfortunately, he uh, he passed away. I think last year. But well, okay, you're right. But I think um, have you ever seen Rachel getting married? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, okay. I lo- okay. So, yeah, I I can't say that completely because I actually really did like. <laughs> See, I'm, I am. Okay, everybody listening, I am full of those. They just take that into consideration. No, but um, I, I love, I love Rachel getting married. I think Anne Hathaway is actually. Sorry, Rob. I, I don't mean to like. <laughs> no, you're good. Okay, no, but that, that was that was 15 years after Philadelphia. The only thing, yeah, right, exactly. 
Mancurian candidate was pretty all you're going to get, really. Well, I mean, let's be honest, though. Compared to um, female film directors, um, male directors are more likely to get work after, you know... Um, a failure. A failure, yeah. 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 Um, can I just say, Sam taylor um, she directed Nowhere Boy and then directed Fifty Shades of Grey. Her career has gone nowhere now. Um, I will also bring up, um, I believe it's the lady who did the piano. Um, Jane Campion. Yep. What, what, what's she doing now? She did. You know? Okay, so she did Top of the Lake, which was on the BBC, which I loved a lot with Elizabeth Moss. But that was literally, that's TV. It's not a mm, movie. So It's kind of the thing where um, the female film directors, they get recognition. Yeah. And, and then what happens to them? They don't get anywhere and it's like patty jenkins did monster right the academy award-winning performance by charlize theron and then she didn't get to do wonder woman until 13 years later (laughs) so yeah and is it uh mary harron mary harron who did america i shot andy warhol i think was her movie in the 90s but yeah and i know um she's doing um Alias Grace on Netflix was pretty good. I checked it out. It's frustrating because these are great directors and they've done some of my favorite films. Yeah. And, and we're saying like, Oh, well these male directors, they're, you know, they've done great films and then they have a flop and they, but they're still getting more work than film directors. Also, uh, Lisa Chaladenko directed the best picture nominee. Kids are all right. And then, she not only has she not done a feature film since, but she's gone to television with Olive Kitteridge. Well, hell, look it's at right. Deborah Granick, who did... Mm. Why did she not get another opportunity? That movie was fantastic. It was spectacular. And uh, Jennifer Lawrence is actually very good at film. Yeah. Like, uh, it's, I think it's, that's her best performance. I do, too. I, I, I wasn't crazy about the film itself, but I thought she was fantastic. I don't think she's... I, I'm honest to say, but I don't think Jennifer Lawrence has done a better performance own. I have a soft spot for Silver Linings Playbook. Um, maybe that's just my, uh, you know, issues with mental illness. But, uh, you know, but well, I, I know I the book really... is a lot better. And the character is in it? the book is a lot. Okay. So. And plus, I'm from I'm actually from that um, area in Pennsylvania. And so, yeah, there were a lot of person that, that movie and that performance. But. I I would probably agree with you if like going back and looking at them because I remember liking her performance in Winter's Book. It's just it's just amazing, but it's really sad the fact that she's gone on to have a really great career and yeah. the film's director has been forgotten. Well, right. okay, I gotta correct this. Um, I looked her up, and she finally has a, another movie. Okay. Oh. Yeah, thank God. In fact. Um, Irony here. Her her latest film, No Trace, debuted at Sundance this year. No Trace. Yep. Why does it sound so familiar? And it uh, no it trace. is currently scheduled for an American release, limited release. So eh, we're finally getting a follow up. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's still it's a bit it's a bit sad, isn't it? That it's taken yeah. this long. I I wasn't the biggest fan of Winter's Bone, but I've only saw it once. Yeah. And I, I saw it at a time where I probably wasn't in the best frame of mind. Mm. So I've been telling myself, like, I really need to film, especially since Jennifer Lawrence 
and hell, John Hawks has gone on to be, do bigger and better things. Yeah. Well, the thing is, that film is kind of, I don't know, I kind of connect with her character of the the whole oldest child looking after her younger siblings type of thing. And that's something that, as a child, I was growing up with, was, you know, being the oldest of five kids and not growing up in like a, not like, I'm not in her situation, but money was quite tight and everything we're not to the point where we're like eating squirrels or anything but <laughs> you know uh i just really connected with her character because i saw a lot of myself in that and i didn't really know jennifer lawrence as an actress but she had, before like her star and celebrity status i felt like that was her being a very real character like a, a real a person um, and I think like I would like to see her go back to small, smaller films like that rather than something like Red Sparrow you know I think she's got it in her to go to be more of the indie film actress I just feel like now that she's in everything so I would like to see her go to a smaller role a smaller film So, well Robin what's no no um, you still have to go yeah, I've got just a, just a scene, a great scene. Uh, I watched it again this morning, and I watched it with my five-year-old daughter. And, and when I tell you what it is, you'll be you'll be shocked. But I did bleep out the swearing. <laughs> a lot of questions. It's the it's the Quaalude scene from the Wolf of Wall Street. Hell so yes! It's it's just one of the best scenes. It's it's ridiculous. It's like quite late in the film as well, so which is quite a funny film. But this was like I remember watching it with my with my wife, and it's a film that I, had, I wanted to pause it because I was I, I nearly died laughing. I'm not gonna because I couldn't believe what was happening. I, just, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was it was like and the voiceover as well doesn't help when he says um, uh, you entered the drool phase and then <laughs> the cerebral palsy straight straight to straight the drool to palsy phase. Yeah. Uh, and then Naomi tells him that the the Swiss guy's on the phone and his phone's just tapped and he's and it's just like groaning like a baby and he's seeing like what his his own child is was a toddler can crawl faster than this and, and it's everything about that scene you know when he looks down the stairs there's only like five steps <laughs> he looks down them there's about twenty and then the fight with the fight with Jonah Hill I mean you, that, when you said Scorsese he laughs his head off behind the camera that you know Scorsese. Ran yeah. with that because the the phone when the phone wire is all around him. Yeah, the phone cord. Right. <laughs> probably went, you know, let's let's get carried away. Uh, and, and, and then you see the car damage, oh, the damage yeah. he did on the way home, and yeah. you realize. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh god, oh, oh. I, I love. Uh, is that the scene where a Jonah Hill starts choking? Yeah, as well yeah. <laughs> on the um, Capriol, like, on like the thing, ham. He's ha- he's choking on ham. <laughs> when he spits out, it's in his face, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Bounces into DiCaprio's face, and he's watching Popeyes on the TV as well, isn't it? And he's watching spinach. Oh, oh, right, because cocaine and is Jordan. his spinach. Is his spinach in the key lane? You know what? I'm going to watch it again. Uh, but my kid, my five-year-old, was like, "What? what? <laughs> Just some tablets he's had. It's okay." <laughs> You know, Robin, I think the best part of that is the fact that they're, like, before that, they're, like, waiting for the shit to kick in. Yeah. Right. Don't even think it's going to kick in. They're like, wait, how old are these? 
<laughs> he just starts slamming, doesn't he? He's on the phone, he just slams it there. And then, uh... Yeah. So oh, they do, God. like, they do the zoom in. That zoom yeah, in is... Zoom. Yeah. Oh, my God. Who... Okay, I gotta look up. Who the hell shot... Dun, dun, dun. That's a Scorsese thing, that, don't it? Where he does the, the pattern zoom simultaneously. Ah, let's makes see. the background. He did it in Goodfellas. Okay, I'm looking it up. The suspense is coming. I don't remember who the hell the this Rodrigo Prieto. Prieto, yes. Okay, right. He did a. I mean, well, the whole film is amazing, but that scene in particular. Whether you whether you're that's one of your favorite films, like Wolf of Wall Street, is for me. When I watched, it, I thought this is Scorsese, like back to his best as a director. Whether it's you know might be a four star film, but. As a director, that is like, he's having a really good time making that film. I, I feel like it's too long. It is too like, long, yeah. It, it's so long. Like, there's bits of it I would have cut, but then uh, it's hard to say which scenes would you cut out, because even though it's a long film, all the scenes are so good, like, yeah. so hilarious. Like, I'm just thinking of the, the, you know, when his father comes in and he's got the bill. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's shit. $40,000 for fucking sides. <laughs> yeah, the sides. The sides for cancer. And Jonah Hill's like, yes, yes, this old and just bullshitting. And I love the, um, who played the father in, in that? Rob Reiner. Rob Reiner. Director of the Princess. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Because yes. I love when they're talking about him answering the phone. And he's like, who's that calling? Oh, hello. Okay. <laughs> the jolly tone. Yeah. By the way, oh, by hello. the way, I have to, I, okay, I have to ask this since we're talking about Rob Reiner in the wolf. Okay. My British friends, what do you guys think of the fact that his character is American, but every time he's on the phone, he suddenly starts speaking British? I love it. Because <laughs> it's like when I answer the phone, I put on a very, like, oh, hello, good noon, how may I help you? Like, I really ham it up, like, the <laughs> British accent, and I think that's, like, it's like we have the phone, we have all have our own telephone phone voice. voice, telephone mm-hmm. voice. Oh, hello there, how can I help you? Are oh, you feeling well? That's wonderful. And it's like, <laughs> I'm being super nice, and I don't mm. actually care. I do want to defend the wolf real quick. Um, I know that it is long. I know that it's basically three-hour bacchanalia. Uh, but I do think that Scorsese succeeds in basically uh, keeping it going, you know, sustaining it. Um, I, I, there were, I was not ever scenes. bored. Yeah, I was not ever bored. Um, I think that he did an amazing job of introducing... Okay, he could very easily introduce characters that don't have any purpose just because, like, they're passing through the life of Jordan Belford or whatever. But it's like he connects every single character he brings in, whether it's Rob Reiner's character, whether it's John Favreau's character, whether it's the, um, you know, aunt, the aunt that has to be the, you know, the holder Joanna of the money. Joanna Lumley. Yeah, yeah, the one yeah. who, so, like, hosted the BAFTAs this year. <laughs> Oh, that, oh, I know that, but I, I don't, um, <laughs> it's embarrassing, uh, but no, I, I have Joanna no clue, Lovely. So. there you go, it's, it's, it's Joanna yes, Lumley, 
I think that I think that it's sustained. I think I think that it's like it's it's a really good movie. And I don't know. I think it's it's as funny of a movie. Yeah. And Star has Joanna Lumley in it. There you go. Uh, (laughs) Good to know. I just say (laughs) she did the BAFTAs. She did. Yeah. Um, my problem with Mm. is uh okay uh it's the scene with the 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 butler i don't like that scene where the, they oh the gay butler when they yeah i no, really don't lo- it's mm-hmm. i i really find it quite uh, i just hate it yeah. and that anyone who says oh i really like the character of george i absolutely mm. hate him right i like he and that scene really does it for me because i'm like what the absolute yeah, what but the hell? B, can Why? I point out something here? It's it's Jonah Hill that throws the first. And yeah, was, that also pisses me off because it's like these guys are really horrible, and mm-hmm. I, I don't like the world that they they live in. I don't want to be a part of that world. I don't care yeah. about the money, and I kind of feel like when people say like, "Oh, I really like." Wolf of Wall Street because that's the life that I want to lead. If you're thinking you're watching that and you're watching that scene and that's you'll be like, oh yeah, that looks like fun. Mm-hmm. What, punch punching people and holding them over balconies and uh, uh, it really, really. I have. Like, I don't think it's Scorsese's fault. It's how people are reading that which bothers me, and that's why I have certain points with Wolf of Wall Street is like. It's almost like how Scarface became like this film where it's glorifying it's, that kind of lifestyle or something. Yeah. yeah, and it's like it's supposed to be a critique, right? It, and it kind of passes into pop culture as that's how we should live our lives. Like, yeah, and I do want to say something real quick. I think there's a there's something that occurs in Scorsese movies that. Um, can kind of connect to that. There's a scene in Goodfellas where Henry is still pretty young. He's a teenager. He sees the man get shot, you know, and he, of course, gets uh, you know a bunch of pizza aprons to to you know clot the the wound. And Teddy or Tuddy is being, we got to toughen this guy up. Twelve fucking aprons you waste on this guy, basically, like, you know, money or goods that being valued, hot human life. And yeah. and again, the Wolf of Wall Street. That scene, they're dangling him over the balcony because he's missing fifty thousand dollars. And but what does he say after? He says the money's not the the issue. I can lose fifty grand in two seconds. Like it's about not not thinking that anybody can get one over on me. And so there are these scenes throughout Scorsese movies that show this, this sort of devaluing of human life over over money, over the yeah. pursuit of money. When yeah. they've killed Billy Bats and De Niro says, like, look what he's done to shoes. Right. So I didn't want to get blood on your floor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> you know, okay. So I, I have to correct something here. I just said it was Jonah Hill that threw the first punch. I was wrong. Um, if you act... I'll probably just delete that, but um, it's actually Kenneth Choi's character. Oh, Ming. Chester Ming, yeah. Yeah. Why do I know his name? I'm sorry. (laughs) so bad. That that actor is great. I think he's in... Yes, he's in 911. Oh, okay. Another Ryan Murphy production. Yep, and he's in... Hell, he's even in uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. Okay. Is he? 
Yeah, he plays uh, the principal. It, is he in the poster? Because I can see him <laughs> on the poster. The poster, that's a mess, you mean? Oh, God. Oh, oh, like, no. <laughs> Thankfully, he's not in the post. High, high five. High five for Bianca. Should I do my last one? <laughs> All right, okay. so um, my my number one scene. Oh, no. Okay. What? I think sorry, Rob. Rob. Rob was first. Sorry. Oh, oh, wait a minute. What? Oh, no. oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. While you were laughing, I was like, "Should I?" It's. Oh, <laughs> my, I'm I'm, I'm sorry. That that's that's totally my fault. You only um, get two. <laughs> so my my final scene is a is one that we're pretty familiar with, but one that I think is very impactful and uh, definitely definitely stands the test of time of Scorsese's movies, and it's the uh, the shoe shine scene. Go home and get your shine box. Um, I think this is probably like the, my favorite scene in the Scorsese movie because it, I don't know, brings to the surface the sort of like macho kind of BS, you know, jostling that men in that world get into all the time. And then sometimes one of them ends up dead because they said the wrong thing. Um, you know, and it's this great, it's this great scene where, you know, he kind of casually comes in with his girlfriend and says hi, and he doesn't want to go down to the other bar, and he just has to go say hi. And Frank Vincent, who plays Billy Bats, a incredible performance, just is absolutely giving him so much shit, and he's just driving up that, you know, what he has over um, even though he's a made guy. And it just completely devolves, even though he leaves and comes back, it completely devolves into chaos and mass violence. Um, and it carries over to, you know, the mother's house, them having dinner, and then having to to kill him, basically, and then bury his body. It's just, I mean, it's partly funny, but partly shocking scene that kind of plays out all, all throughout the movie. Scene of him in the trunk as well, so. Well, by the way, that, that actor, that young actor, um, God, okay, he went, oh, shit, I'm, wasn't he in this? Who? The, the, Frank Vincent? No, oh, the, spider. The, the spider. Kid, yeah, spider who gets spider, shot. Yeah. Chris, yeah, he plays Chris Moltisante. It's Michael Imperial. Jesus, yes. Oh my God, he that's gets right. shot. Okay, he gets shot in the foot, right? A spider, and then he gets killed. But in the Sopranos, in the first season, he's in like uh, the character Chris is in a baby to be waited on, and because he's like not given service and he's kind of given shit, he shoots him in the foot, and <laughs> David Chase's <laughs> like homage to um, Goodfellas. Yeah, and that's one thing I want to do is that without Martin Scorsese, I doubt there would be David Chase and The Sopranos. Um, mm. I think that they, I mean, first of all, so many of the actors in Goodfellas are in The Sopranos, um, but I think it just had such a cultural impact for for mob movies and for the gangster picture that um, it, it. I think it definitely influenced. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, and uh, also the Simpsons episode where. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> where Bart um, joins, oh god, I don't know what the gangsters call Simpsons now. Fat Tony. Fat Tony. It's amazing. <laughs> I was just saying about like Cape Fear. I shared like, yesterday the um, Simpsons episode. The, the um, yeah. four scene with all oh, the rakes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's like, oh, uh, die Bart, die. It's German. Uh, it's like, <laughs> v, no, one who, no one who speaks German could be an evil man. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's one of the greatest episodes of The Simpsons ever. Yes. 
And it wouldn't exist if it hadn't been for Martin Scorsese. Oh, completely. Well, okay, so my first, my top choice, the one that I thought about, I'm like, okay, when I, it's not necessarily the first scene I think of when I think of Scorsese, mm-hmm. but it's arguably the, when you think about anticipation, which is one of his best uh, features, it's, it's the stand-up scene in the King of Comedy. Yeah. Have you got... Who, okay. Ha, who here has seen the King of Comedy? I have. I haven't. Ah, uh, Robin? I Wait, think okay. might. Oh, I think he just stepped away. <laughs> I think... I don't know. I might have heard a kid coming into the room. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm picturing, you know what? I'm picturing it like the scene... You know the BBC News... When yeah. the, the guy's doing the interview about Korea. Mm-hmm. I'm picturing it like that. Yeah. Uh, like Robert's had with us. And then like the kid came in and he's like... Well, that's, that's the same thing that happened to Daniel. Yeah. When he was on Al Jazeera. Yeah. Wow. In fact, if it, okay. Have you guys seen that with Daniel? No. No. Okay, I'm going to have to send you the link. It's hilarious. Okay. Da- believe it or not, I don't think you guys are are aware of this, but Daniel is sort of a celebrity because oh. he, he was, he was mentioned on the today, the, the, the today show. What? That's cool. Yeah. 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 Like, um, they, they brought up him and they showed that moment when Daniel was being interviewed by Al Jazeera and he had the oh, same wow. kind of moment where his kid ran into the room and interrupted him when he was doing it. Wait a minute. I feel like I've literally seen this video and like I ha I don't like I didn't know I was even talking to that guy on like previous podcast. That's <laughs> funny. I just looked at his t- like dude has a PhD in film and he's 47. I got 18 years to catch up. No big deal. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh. But yeah, no that that's that's Daniel. Wow. <laughs> You know, we were saying like the seven degrees of separation earlier, but right. like it's crazy Ooh. how it really is. Yeah. Well, okay. And you know, while Robin is standing away for a second, let me just tell you the quick little story of how I even know him. It's because of Awards Daily. Wait, did Robin just come back? Yeah, here, kid. <laughs> Robin, are you back? Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> His kid wants to watch the rest of Wolf of Wall Street with him. Yeah, the, the, the trying to put Kate Fear on, but I'll try the line at that one. <laughs> well, I was just telling them about how how we know each other and how, right. how, how like, I know uh, Daniel and, frankly, how I know Steve and how the hell we all know each other. It's, oh, it's, that, strip, that strip club, yeah. Yeah, that strip club. <laughs> 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 Those quaaludes. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I thought I told you not to mention that. Oh, sorry, you did, yeah. Oh, is this... Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but no, no. Uh, uh, Daniel, uh, Steve, Robin, and I all know each other from Awards Daily. And uh, I got involved in 2011. I started um, commenting. Then I saw Robin was commenting, and I saw Steve and Daniel. And the funny thing was, Daniel was under the alias Unlikely Hood. And Steve was Steve 50. And Robin was like, sorry, I hope this doesn't embarrass you, Robin. But you were like, dude, I'm a guy. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't me. That wasn't me. Are you sure? 
I could have sworn that was you. Uh, I've always had the same name. Well, okay. Well, anyway, so like, that's that's how we all know each other. In case you guys ever wondered. Well, um, me and Rob, we bonded over Brett Easton Ellis, um, and they were like BFFs. Yeah. So, uh, I I can't even remember how we started talking. I think it was like something like the the assistant posted, and then we started chatting about it, and then it was like, hey, we like movies, and we also like Brett Easton Ellis. This is pretty awesome. Um, now now we're friends. Nice. Yeah, I'm kind of a anti-social person um, in my <laughs> real life, and so it's just hard for me to meet people to talk about movies to because I'm super passionate and super people have a very casual movies, and, it's, and that's great. You know, that's probably a little more healthy, Ugh. but... Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, so yeah, it's definitely a blessing in disguise that I. I mean, what I can't understand is when people say I don't watch movies. I came across yeah. someone once who was like, "Oh, I don't watch movies." Well, what do you do? Like, come <laughs> on, like movies yeah. are my life. Like, yeah. what are you doing with yours? Right. <laughs> not that I mean, I'm not trying to sound rude, but it just baffles me. It's like. So that's like saying you don't breathe or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, right, I'll, um, have to go. I'll have to go now, guys. It's screaming kids and... Okay. All right, well... well just put War for Wall Street on for them. They'll love right. it. You're right. It's like three hours, three hours, isn't it? So it's... <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I wanted to finish with uh, what I put on Twitter about um i i posed the question uh on, and so um robin how soon are you gonna leave? are you gonna leave like in the next two minutes or like next two minutes yeah i'll have to i'll have to i'll have to yeah i have to pop out it's it's snowing so okay the sooner I, yeah the sooner i get out the better yeah go so i'll go now but i'll um i'm sure you can answer all the questions and uh send me um Alright. Okay. Well, thank you. Take right. care. Right. Take care. Too I did. I just picked French. <laughs> I said au revoir. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, we got a question. We got a couple questions, or well, co- questions slash comments. So the first that I got now. Okay, it was from our friend Matt Neglia at best. At, uh, blah, 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 blah. Next, by, next by, best picture. Next best picture. By the way, can you guys tell that I'm drunk? Are you no, drunk? No, you're just tired. You were at work last night, right? <laughs> well, I'm both. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. Yeah, I'm both. I'm on quaaludes. So. <laughs> what yeah. was saying? No, I, I'm gonna have a hell of a time editing, but I, I think I've had about six or seven beers. Okay. <laughs> I haven't had my morning, so, you know. (laughs) Nice. Okay. All right, so uh, Matt asks, what is your favorite Marty Scorsese film per decade, and what do you think is the Quint... Okay, uh, if we go from, shall we go 70s? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to say Taxi Driver. And then 80s, I'm going to say Raging Bull. 90s, I'm going to say Goodfellas. 2000s, I'm going to say The Departed. 
and then 2010's Wolf of Wall Street. Okay, and then what's the quint? Taxi Driver. Okay, so I'm going to be a little boring and say 70s Taxi Driver, 80s Raging Ball, 90s Goodfellas, 2000s The Departed. But for 2010, I'm going to go with Silence. Nice. That is quintessential film is easily Goodfellas. Yeah, I um I'm pretty much on board with everyone else. Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas, uh, The Departed, and Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, and yeah, I I can't. I think Goodfellas has just cemented itself so much since it came out. Since I watched it, and I mean that is that's that's Martin Scorsese. I feel it's the most quintessential film. Oh no, I want to say good. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, okay. So favorites, okay. So I go, yeah, Taxi Driver. I go the king of comedy, Goodfellas, mm. The Departed, yeah. and Quintessential. Oh God, Whew. I mean that is actually really hard. And I'm not trying to be like a diva here, but <laughs> I, I do feel like because Martin Scorsese is one of the all-time greats, mm. there there can be an argument made. You know, I mean if you're talking crime then, yeah, it's probably Goodfellas. But if you're talking about just the way that he makes a film, I know that, like, for instance, the American Film Institute, they uh, latched on to Raging Bull. And, in fact, when the AFI did their 2007 uh, Top 100 Films time, Raging Bull came out. Yep. Wow. I mean, it's certainly one of those ones that if you're going to study film, yeah. You should study it because it is film making. Um, it's you know one hundred and one type of thing. It's it's up there with Citizen Kane and and The Godfather on how to to make a film. So it's got everything you need there and and shows you just how you should construct a film in order to make it work. It's um, it's timeless, you know, raging, but like the cinematography and the like, how it's shot and how everything, the, the technical filmmaking aspect of it, it it could be literally it could be a movie that was made in the like the fifties or the sixties, mm-hmm. kind of. I mean, maybe not, but but it's that kind of idea. Of, it doesn't matter that it was released in nineteen eighty. You know, it's just it's about these people, the boxing, the how the ring is shot. I feel like it. I mean, not revolutionary, you know, because what does that really mean? But I, I really feel like everybody has been chasing Martin Scorsese when it comes to, like, the boxing movie. And Raging Bull has so much more than that to it as well. So I think it's definitely an all-time great film. And I know that film historians in general really respect it as well. Yeah, and, I mean, De Niro, my God. Woo! That what a brute, man. Oh, Wow. Flawed doesn't even cover, like, begin to cover it. I mean, what, like, a monster. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when people talk about the greatest, ah, can't even talk. When people talk about the greatest performers of all time, you know, first they mention Brando, right? And they, you know, like, on the waterfront. James Dean. Yeah. Yeah, James Dean. They they talk about his role in The Godfather. But then they they mention De Niro in yeah it's, it's incredible and how different is it from Travis Bickle too I mean how different are those characters 
<laughs> well, about you know three hundred pounds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> but just in like uh, you know mindset and persona, and I mean, right? Travis yeah. Bickle is this sort of kind of small, juvenile um, guy. Yeah. Sorry, guys, has, I'm going to have to just go. To Ooh. I'm really sorry. Okay. Um, I, I gotta go. Just bear with me. Okay. Hello. Hello. Okay. Sorry, I just fixed that. I was waiting for her to, to like hang up, and she wasn't. Oh. Hmm. Okay. I don't know. Uh, weird. Um. All right. So anyway, um, <laughs> was she talking? No, I was. I was just kind of saying how different um Bickle and, and oh, uh, yes. Jake Lamada are, but yes. No, no. Go ahead. Uh, well, um, ah, all right. Um, sorry, Rob. Did you uh, get to say everything you wanted to say? Yeah, yeah. I'm done. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. Uh yeah. I'm just starting. <laughs> the beer is catching up to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry, guys. Um, all right. So anyway, well, good thing is I'll have plenty of time to edit this. Um, all right, so next we have uh, our friend Brendan Cassidy, from, and he, he made a comment. So I'd love to get your guys' opinions. Okay. So he said, okay. underappreciated Scorsese. Um, Alice doesn't live. Bring out the dead and Hugh. No, the only one I've seen from those is Hugo. Um, and I've, I'm sorry, the only one that I've seen out of those is Bringing Out the Dead, the Nicolas Cage amb- you know, ambulance movie. Um, Hugo, I haven't seen, and Alice doesn't live live here uh, anymore. I haven't seen. Yeah, do you guys think those probably are the? I think King of Comedy probably is. I consider it an underrated one because it's it's a movie I kind of had to seek out. It wasn't really available anywhere, and people didn't really talk about it. It you know critics kind of wrote about a problem movie or something for Scorsese, and I I absolutely love it. So, mm-hmm. um, but but no. You know that just reminds. I I I started saying how the the King of Comedy was my first pick, but I don't think I went into the reason. If you guys will bear with me for one second. I'll give you. Yeah. So it's because the fact that like we get all the way through the we realize that um, Rupert Pump, Pupkin is crazy, right? But we don't exactly know why. We just realized that this is a guy who may or may not be funny. And the fact that, like, Sandra Bernhardt is his his cohort, and they're both a little crazy. And mm-hmm. the fact that, that, that like, they both want to make it big, but that De Niro actually has the chops. He actually is funny. And we find out in the last scene that, there is some comedy to this guy, you know, that he's not just some crazy nut. Right. And, um, the fact that like, he's kind of a show off on top of that, you know, because he realizes that one day is worth a whole lifetime for him. Mm -hmm. And I love that, you know, that the fact that, you know, Scorsese is willing to say, it's okay if you're happy, super happy for one day to make up for a whole lifetime. You know, I mean, that's saying a lot. Yeah, I also thought there was a there was a more like creepy 
idea being shown on screen was that this guy, because he was willing to do sort of crazy things, that's what catapulted him to fame in America. And it was sort of was commenting on fame, you know, in America in, you know, the 80s going on. But that, you know, uh, being famous was sort of the, you know, and look where we are with reality TV stars today. But that ultimately just being famous was enough, was was worth was worth going to jail or whatever the risk was, but then he gets award rewarded for it, you know? <laughs> so it's like, it felt like it was sort of a commentary on like the media and America. And certainly if you look at it through that lens, it was ahead of its time, but, or, or maybe right at its time. Cause I mean, certainly network came out uh, six years prior, but have you seen that film? The King the of comedy. Yeah. I, I, I haven't. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, it, it would have, when I saw it this past year, it actually reminded me a lot of, um, oh my gosh, I can't think of what it's called now. Um, oh yeah. Ingrid goes West. You know, I don't know if either of you saw that movie this year, but it's kind of indicating uh, on the King of comedy, but just dealing with sort of the fame now that we're de- like that we have where we have Instagram stars, we have, you know, social media stars that aren't necessarily known for a talent or a skill, you know, it's. It's not necessarily the same thing because obviously, like you know, Rupert Pupkin is is a comedian or wants to be a comedian. He's he, but he is delusional. You know, you see him living at home with his mother, pretending that he's doing his own show. And I'm just like, okay, there is a little bit of me in this character. You know, there's a little bit of, of that desperation to want to be known, to want to be seen, to want to be heard. You know, um, I mean, certainly I'm not a, a stalker or anything, but. I, I at least related with that kind of desperate, desperate, that human desperation. But um, yeah, I think that uh, Angry Goes West is like a nice kind of piece to kind of that explores the similar themes. So, do you guys mind if I read you sort of the end of of Rupert's like um, his comedy routine? No, please do. Okay. Even as a young man, I began the very at the very top of collecting autographs. Now, a lot of you are probably wondering why Jerry isn't with us tonight. Well, I'll tell you. The fact is, he's tied up. I'm the one who tied him up. Well, I know you think I'm joking, but believe me, that's the only way I could break into the show business. By hacking Jerry, hijacking Jerry Langford. Right now, Jerry is strapped to a chair somewhere in the middle of the city. Go ahead, laugh. Thank you. I appreciate it. But the fact is, I'm here. Now, tomorrow, you'll know I wasn't kidding. And you'll think I was crazy. But look, I figure it this way. Better to be a king for a night than a schmuck for a lifetime. Thank you, thank you. This is a recurring theme, too, with, throughout Scorsese's movies about the, you know, the, the everyman being a schmuck. Yeah, you know, Henry Hill talks about in the Goodfellas, like yeah. these people were dead. You know, if we wanted something, we just took it. Um, Wolf of Wall Street talks about that, like you know, um, it's even a line in something like the a Bronx Tale by Chad, you know, Chaz Palminteri and directed by Robert De Niro that the working man is a sucker. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a that's a frequent theme. Yep. So I want to add one more comment. And that is from Cinema Strikes Back on Twitter at Cinema underscore Strikes. And they said, After Hours, 
It's fondly remembered, but barely listed in the top tier of Scorsese films. I agree. After Hours is great. You know, it's 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 sort of in the in the uh, the whole career of Scorsese. It's a B film, but it's probably his A plus of B films. It gets compared with another movie that came out a year later by Jonathan Demme called Something Wild. Um, it's kind of a similar, you know, um, you know, not road because I don't think After Hours is necessarily a road trip movie. But it's this thing where, you know, this guy is set on a path that he's not familiar with. And, you know, where is it going to lead him? Is he going to trust the wrong people? That kind of thing. So um, I, I, I frequently hear kind of those movies looked back on. Um, and, and it definitely has gotten, you know, it definitely has its fans. Uh, I just haven't gotten to see it yet. So I'm definitely looking forward to, to checking it out. Well, B... Uh... If you're uh, if you hear this, and well, of course you'll hear this. Check out After Hours. You know, you were talking about the 1980s and Scorsese. After Hours is like one of those quintessential uh, Scorsese films where it's not about anything in particular, but it's very much stylistic. And I think you'd actually really like it. In fact, I think you'd all really like it. Well, do either one of you guys have anything else you want to add? Not off the top of my head, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've gone quite a long ways with Scorsese today. Yeah, I'm I'm good. I think that we had a really good, thorough conversation and touched on a lot of his movies and moments. And Absolutely. All right, well, I guess I will just add this. To the listeners out there who are like us, who love... Marty Scorsese and his whole career and all of his films. Please let us know what you think. Please let us know uh, what what is your favorite of his. What is your favorite scene? What do, do you prefer Daniel Day Lewis or are you more of a Leonardo DiCaprio fan? Um, or would you prefer to see him star somebody else? Like in my opinion, Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, I'd love to hear your opinions. We'd all love to hear your opinions. Please leave us a comment. And uh, don't know where we're going to go next, but uh, you can for sure stay tuned because we'll be coming back soon. Thank you very much for listening and uh, have a great night.